They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Hello and welcome to the show. If you're enjoying it and want an ad-free experience, consider signing up for the Patreon, patreon.com slash the101podcast get early access and exclusive content on there as well for less than the cost of a cup of coffee links to ways of supporting the show are in the description thank you so much for listening and enjoy this episode Welcome back to another episode of the Occult Book Club. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where we cover occult books. So don't be in the comments talking about we should read the Bible and stuff. I actually want to do a Revelation episode, and I think I have the perfect esotericist for that. So I'm down should to do it. Should we just read the entire Bible and review it? We should. We should do that. Right. Because review each book. We need more Jesus in our lives, more God and Jesus, right? Is it going to be a Christian podcast from now on, Thomas? So today's episode is, I'm just kidding. Listen, make sure to follow the, at least my podcast at the one one podcast on Instagram Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, everywhere. The one one podcast.com. Make sure to check out the occultist Monday on the website as well. If it'll focus, I guess not. There we go. Occultist Monday. I'm working on another issue now, so. Should be out soon, and make sure to get your copy of the comic book too, right? Chosen Juan, and I know Thomas has some stuff too. He wants to plug. Damn, got the There's pamphlet, the alternative cover. Oh, that's right, I forgot about that one. I actually don't even have a copy of the alternative cover. It, it was very limited, <laughs> so limited that you don't even got one. Damn, bro. And yeah, let me just and then let me just show off, man. For anyone that wants to just see, this is just some of the very small library. Um, and these are all on Amazon right here, but I've got secret mystery school and time samplers and paranoid American history and all kinds of, of, uh, huge selection of books. So check them all out on Amazon. Just look for paranoid American on Amazon. You'll see all these on there and a whole lot more. Uh, and then me and you, Juan, we're working on a homunculus pamphlet. Yep. So that's coming. That's, uh, about halfway done at this point. The artwork's looking phenomenal. It's going to look like a classic comic book. 
uh, mm-hmm. artwork style, but it's going to break down the entire history of homunculi from their original conception across different cultures and beliefs and philosophies all the way to modern day. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And then, and maybe even a little guide on how to use a homunculus <laughs> should you be able to, to manifest one somehow. Yeah. And make sure too, if you want more of the show, early access, shout out to the people who signed up on YouTube, shout out to the people who signed on Patreon. So check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash the one one podcast and enough of this talk bro let's get let's get to business this episode has been on the back of my mind for a while now and i had ignored it a little bit when you had brought it up because i wasn't 100 percent. just like all the other books that i that i got on the list <laughs> oh yeah that sounds okay what yeah we'll get to that where i i wasn't really grasping the concept and then when i started to read it i'm gonna be honest thomas it hurt my sack for the first few pages but then once it gets warmed up it really starts to get going and once the sack starts tingling yeah and and my sack started tingling my nipples got hard and (laughs) and we're ready for it so right off the bat thomas right off the back how do you how are you supposed to say that back or bat i think it's right off the bat right off the bat so fiction or non-fiction thomas the the jury's a little bit out man uh honestly because all the other references that i found to this book referred to it as a satirical work on descartes and there's a few instances at the very end there was there's one in particular that i don't want to jump all the way but the uh, the author kind of makes this joke about well now that i understand like this cartesian philosophy then i know it's totally fine to go in and torture dogs which is a reference to Rene Descartes thought that, you know, anything less than a reasonable human was just a mechanical beast. And don't worry, it doesn't have a soul. It can't feel pain. And a lot of that thinking kind of persists in modern day times. But anyways, the way that he says that at the very end is the one tiny nugget that made me think maybe this is satire, but man, the very beginning of the book, he goes to like an extreme length to say like, this is not metaphor. This is not allegory that you're going to read this and you're going to think, oh, this guy's using this as a rhetorical device or as a literary device just to make it seem interesting. And he says, no, I'm not doing any of that. You need to read this and take it verbatim and literal. So I don't know, man, the, the jury's out. I'm very much 50-50 on whether it's 100% real or if it's satire or if it's a little bit of allegory, even though the preface explicitly says that it's not. So, so where are you at? I think I know where you're at, but where are you at? I mean, it makes so much sense to me. When Once I started getting into it, it started connecting other dots to me. And with reading so much material and, and doing so much research, a lot of things get blurry. And I went back and I'm going to kind of sort of talk about Descartes today because he's one of my favorite philosophers. I have covered him before on the show. I've done an, a whole episode on him. And it's only scratching the surface. It's not even anything super crazy because he was that influential. He had so many different ideas that you can't, it'd be a 10 hour episode, right? So I had talked about him before and I went back and I confirmed some of the concepts that I understood, how I understood it. Now, it did confirm some things for me that I've talked about before on the podcast as far as the conception of the Cartesian coordinate system. Well, scholars say it was related to something else. I was under the impression it was something. So I it was just blurry. I think 
that <laughs> I think it's it's considered I think sci-fi for its time and and fun, fun fact it's actually the first one of the first documented instances where they meant they use outer space the moderns in the modern sense like outer space and now i know i didn't know that yeah i know i lost a bunch of people because you know you have the people in my comments you know space is fake and it's fake and gay (laughs) listen hear us out just suspend he's the first one that invented it this is where nasa the the big nasa lie (laughs) began was right here but just we're gonna be talking about some stuff just i know it's we're gonna talk about outer space we're gonna talk about other planetary spheres and celestial bodies it just if you're in that crowd either stick around or i don't care do whatever but i can already i can already see the comments like oh but you want to know where the lies came from so for just for that point alone stick around and figure out where that original live space came from it came from a book like this probably so but continued onward to the indefinite spaces the space beyond the universe this may have been the first use of space in the modern sense of outer space and this is 1694 and we're gonna be talking about today there i i promise you you're not gonna find anything else on the interwebs about it it's called a voyage to the world of cartesius and it's by an enigmatic guy and his name is gabriel daniel now the reason names that's the Anyone that's got two first names is sketch. And that's why I'm on the fence about it, bro. Because if if when you look this guy up, nothing. Biography. Born in Rouen. He was educated by Jesuits. Yep, he was a French Jesuit historian. That's about as much information that I was able to dig up on this particular guy. And, and again, in particular, it's really hard to search Google for a person that has two first names as their mm-hmm. first and last name. Mm-hmm. So trying to figure out Gabriel Daniel, French Jesuit, was still not specific enough. You, The Britannica, French Jesuit historian whose writings include an outstanding history of France. Daniel entered the Society of Jesus in 1667, later became librarian of the professed house at Paris and was appointed histographer. Hopefully I'm saying history, historiographer, history, hopefully I'm saying that right, whatever, of France by King Louis the XIV, whichever number that is. Very fancy. <laughs> Maybe it's the 14th. In the last capacity, he wrote a pioneering work, and he wrote a whole bunch of other stuff. He also wrote, and apparently he was an esotericist in René Descartes. So he was uh, very fond of his work, and... He inserted himself in the story in order to understand, right? Because there there was a battle going on between Aristotelian. So is it a story or is it a recounting dude, of dude, an actual experience? Dude, dude, I think. Are we just going to call it a story or are we going to call it like his biography? I think it was real, bro. <laughs> well, well, don't call it a story then. Let's call it his biography. All right, his biography. So this dude's writing about an experience that he had now thomas if you i don't know where you want to start you want to start at the beginning or if you want to yeah let give me, people a break let down. me drop a couple so so for context this is really helpful so this guy gabriel daniel is born in 1649 so 1649 is actually one year before descartes himself died so this guy that wrote this book was born while descartes was alive albeit by one year um and the when this book was um written 
Galileo had just recently been executed. Galileo died seven years before this guy was born. So, if, so it's important to, to take a look that this Gabriel Daniel French Jesuit historian was essentially a contemporary of Galileo and Descartes, maybe separated by one, two generations max. So it's kind of in the realm where Rene Descartes' philosophy is still fairly new. Galileo is still somewhat, you know, uh, controversial to some people, and I guess today too. But yes. that, so so it's not like this is a guy that's writing from a hundred years into the future and looking back and kind of writing philosophy. And also, it's based on what he says is this old man that he met when he was adventuring around the countryside, and that the old man was an actual friend of Rene Descartes personally. So the the whole book, this one section where he gets into this biography and the the uh, voyage to the world of Cartesius. This is based on what an older guy kind of relayed to him, and then they meet him in this astral projection. Before realm. you go there, Thomas. Okay. <laughs> are you a Cartesian? I think if you say yes, then it means that you're not, because a real cart. The book is basically saying that anyone that claims to be a Cartesian at this point is not an actual Cartesian. I got, so right off the bat with what you're saying, when I was reading through this, I got vibes of alchemy, Elias Artista, this metaphysical ascended master, this guy that he knows a guy who knew him, right? He studied under him and he's like, hey, you know, dude's been dead for 40 years, but I talked to him on the regular. <laughs> what? What are you on, bro? What are you, what are you saying? And if we look at the timeline, I mean, it would fall in line with when alchemy is, it, it, you know, it's getting stronger. It's it's there. The Rosicrucians are around this time as well. We know that Descartes was also allegedly either part of it or looking for it. And there's and, and I don't want to get too much lost in the sauce with that because I want to do this whole other book where it gets into that. But there's language that Descartes was using that hinted at him being in this brotherhood, right? And so this whole thing to me is screaming alchemy, right? At, at, at the very least. Well, and, and secret society on top of that, because he mentions that Rene Descartes knew all this information, but that he didn't want to give it to the public world, that, that he had his published works for the world. Yes. And then he had his even more important works that he only kept for his close friends the, and his correspondence. Yeah, the exoteric and esoteric, which is not too far-fetched because there is, Descartes did have secret journals, right? Stuff that he, for example, I mean, we'll get into it here, but he did, yes, have exoteric works and esoteric works. He did have a personal journal, according to some, that he kept all his, it was encrypted, so he was a cryptographer as, as well, but he was also very religious. Just like how this guy, the... Gabriel Daniel guy was also very religious. So that also bleeds into the work of, of, of this work. If, if it's a real account or not, you can read it for yourself and decide because like I said, it made my sack tingle at first. And then once it gets really warmed up, you're like, okay, I see what's going on here. And it was kind of blurry because the, the English is a little bit different, but it's not as bad as some of the stuff that we've had to read. 
I think it's it, it was more tame than a lot of the stuff that we had to read. It, it wasn't so bad because it was so interesting. I think because I know the one that you're thinking of is the uh, the Benjamin Paul Blood. Oh man, uh, one which was a very hard read just because it was so like you know he's talking about Hegelian dialectics and real deep like German philosophy where mm-hmm. this this one is like you said it's a little bit sci-fi, uh, yes. but I did kind of pick my choice quotes out and take the the liberty of sort of rewording them into a little bit more modern english so that we can quote some stuff and discuss very particular topics because there's a there's a whole bunch of bangers in this one yeah let's go ahead and do that and then i want to paint a picture like chronologically of what the book is about and because it gets really weird and you, you there's talks about the soul they're in I'm going to say outer space. I know some of you don't like that term, but some of them are in outer space. And they go to the moon, right? And they go from the moon beyond, right? They're they're transcending. It's not sci-fi so much. It's more like a mystical, like the guy is more like a psychopomp. How they get there. And dude, I'll... Trust to me, me, it was like Magic School Bus, yeah. like going on the Magic School Bus with Rene Descartes and then learning about how the moon affects the, the earth and the tides. And it was so take it away, cool. Thomas. OK, so so one last bit of context here is, is how I came about this book and why nobody has probably even heard about this is I was just doing a whole bunch of research into old newspapers and trying to find the earliest mentions of pineal gland, like biological anatomy research you know dissecting and eating and just all kinds of crazy stuff with pineal glands in particular because in the early 1900s there was a whole movement where they thought that if you ate pineal glands from beef or even other people that you could inherit all this knowledge and I was just wondering like where did that original concept come from so I found this old article from 1776 and it mentions a book called The Miscellaneous Essays and Occasional Writings of Francis Hopkinson, Esquire, Volume 1. <laughs> Long as titled. It didn't, it didn't get a lot of sales. It was kind of uh, like a softball, you know, that no one actually saw. It was a sleeper. But this was published in 1776. Unique year, right? A lot of mm-hmm. things happened in 76. Yeah. So this, uh, this article is talking about a book. Or, or an, another magazine article that they had read in the Guardian, which is not the same Guardian that you're thinking of that still exists today. There was I a short-lived it. Guardian, and it existed from 1712 to 1713. And in the 35th ep, um, issue of the Guardian, Tuesday, April 21st, 1713, they talk about this book that this guy read that that was able to take a drug and then separate your soul from your pineal gland specifically and project it out into space and that you could use your soul when it's out of your body to jump into other people's bodies and to learn from all sorts of philosophers and then take that knowledge back with you and jump into your head. All right. And I, so, so the first thing I thought of was the scene where Neo learns how to fly the helicopter by just downloading information and just bam. So I know Kung Fu. It caught my interest immediately. So what you're saying now, if we relate this back to the cart, because it makes perfect sense now, now Again, this could be fan fiction. Don't think so. But he was the one that established the mind-body dualism, that your mind is aside from your body, and they each exist independently of each other. Well, maybe. I don't know if I agree with that. Because it it wasn't the mind-body dualism from what I got from this book was that some people 
thought that that was um, already a thing, but they thought that your soul was almost like this exact cutout of your body just overlaid <laughs> onto it. And Descartes was like, no, because your soul can't be in your arms or your legs and it can't be in your chest and it can't be in your ear. It has to be in a specific place in your brain. And he surmised that it was the pineal gland because he figured at the time, which I think is probably incorrect uh, anatomically, but that the pineal gland was where the spinal cord and all the nerves kind of met. And it was this like dream center, which he was right about. Mm-hmm. But because it was this sort of meeting of all the nerves and biology and how you control your body, that the soul the actually ghost in the sat machine. right there. Yeah, it's it's the ghost in the machine type of thing where it's like you're inhabited by it, but still, you know what I mean? And, and that's what really, because he gets into the whole soul and they talked about something that you told me about. And I know we didn't talk too much because I didn't want to start talking about the book too much off air and I wanted to do it on air. But... Every, a lot of the things that he's mentioning, it goes back to Cartesian physics. And I've, again, I, I've looked into this before. So I was kind of familiar when you started talking about the different layers of matter, the vortexes and all these different things. And it's something called the, I could have swore I saw it named the Cartesian mechanistic universe theory, where he believed that everything, every single different reality consists of different levels of He's got different layers for us. So there's like three different types of reality, right? And they yeah, every, the three elements essentially. The th- the yeah, three the three states of matter. Yeah, exactly, ex- exactly, matter. And everything is rubbing up against each other like a cog, <laughs> and it's creating reality. That's that's essentially what we know, and that's Cartesian mechanistic theory. Well, and and, and not just the cog, but he just man, this this book breaks it down in a way that I've never understood it before. And, and like they they give you the visuals and they're so vivid, but he kind of describes it as that the original matter, and I'm gonna butcher this because I'm not Rene Descartes, <laughs> the guy that wrote this, you know, Gabriel <laughs> Daniel. But that the original matter essentially starts as these perfect cubes, um, which whole bunch of freemasonic context that i didn't want to get into but it starts with these perfect cubes and that as these cubes bump into each other it ba- they basically if you took like two you know marble cubes and you just kept knocking them against each other the the corners start breaking off mm-hmm. and if you keep doing it over and over again eventually what's kind of happening is you're going to round them both out right you're going to like polish them and that this polishing act is sort of like the universe trying to perfect something that was already somewhat perfect and through that process of trying to create these like fake you know uh spheres that he kind of calls them those spheres those are are like our our concept of what perfect would be but it can't ever be perfect because it's missing all those little corners and that what we are and the matter of the universe and you look at your hand and you look at material objects we are neither the perfect square nor these ideal circles. We're all the dust. That, like when you s- smash these together and you see the dust flying around, that's us. And that's our world. And that's our star system is just this garbage dust. The, c- the cum we, shot we, of the universe. Right. <laughs> and we think we're like the, the most important part, but we're just like the garbage that gets knocked away as the universe constantly tries to perfect itself. Damn, bro. Um, so that was the way that I, I interpreted this. And I had never seen it the way until they, they describe it step by step. In you're you're what the universe flosses out of its teeth. And you're just like, yeah. you know, when you look at the fire, you're just like, some, some people go, right? They put it back. <laughs> so that's what we are. And, and again, back to the mind-body duel. So they're talking about the transmutation of the soul 
from where you're able to leave your body and come back to study in the invisible college, right? Huh? Uh, invisible. Yep, yep. Co- you're able to go to this other dimension, study with all the greatest philosophers of all time, retain that knowledge, come back into your body. Now, this screams pick a tricks to me. It screams talismatic magic. It screams all this sort of stuff where the watchers is what watches over your body when you go out and start doing your astral travels and fucking break dancing and all this stuff and and, and on the moon or whatever you're doing. So, yeah, back to that concept of the transmutation of the soul, which that can play into reincarnation, that can play into a lot of things, the immortal alchemist as well. Once you achieve the magnum opus, you're able to step outside of space and time. You know, you scoot open space and time and you just stick your head in there like the flammarian engraving where the dude is peeking his head out through the fabric of reality and you're just like the scene from ace ventura when he's peeking out from the uh the rhino (laughs) yeah yeah exactly giving birth to the talk about the anal birth of the homunculus so and and a less woo-woo version of that is is when i see this i think of how the double uh strand helix kind of came up where the dudes take lsd and all of a sudden it's like, oh, maybe the DNA is formed like this. And I know that's another controversial if they really came upon that. But that concept of like sleeping on an idea and then waking up and or having like an epiphany just out of nowhere and the answer is just presented to you. They kind of describe this as a way to, to take over that intentionally, right? So that you can actually say, I don't want to just go to sleep and then randomly wake up with a good idea. I want to be able to, to detach my soul from my body and go out into the universe and see these actual, like, see the universe formed firsthand, visually, and then bring that information back into my natural body. And that very few people can do that. Do you believe in astral travel, Thomas? Do you believe in in the Merkaba and all that stuff? Do you do you believe in the soul Maybe. scent? 50-50. I've, le- I've learned not to dismiss it, but I wouldn't give it any more credit than any other idea so far. Yeah, because I know you're not too woo-woo. I know you're you're a, a rational guy. We're talking about the guy who established rationalism. I, I like to be a fence-sitter a little bit, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I, I but I, I do that. think that, so So there's a couple themes in this book, and I hope we can get to almost all of them, but one of the themes, in my opinion, is that Rene Descartes had DMT. I'm going to say it's DMT. It's impossible to figure out the exact plan, but they mentioned that he's got a little snuff box and that it was mixed with tobacco to dilute this very strong herb that would have you have this completely disassociative experience where your soul would leave your body and you would be blasted into outer space and seeing the world created firsthand and then come back. So if that's not some kind of a psychedelic hallucination of some kind, I don't know what what else you would call that. But to me, it seems important that that's kind of the crux of this book. And it says that Rene Descartes, would take these little like a hit you know he'd take a little bump and he would slouch over at a desk and he would just be gone for like two to three hours <laughs> in some cases the guy that the, writes the book he does the same thing he he gets some of this exact same snuff or well, he walks in on mentor. the guy right? well the mentor walks in on well, the guy on, on, on the car right? so so we'll, we'll get to that in a second but i guess the idea is that this book establishes one of the very first instances that i can find 1694 of like a a well-known respected philosopher doing psychedelic drugs for the the specific intent of being able to separate their mind from their body so they can learn more and then bring that information back into their body which was something that uh benjamin paul blood was trying to do with nitrous but by the time he would sober up all the information was just gone it would just dissipate 
But this is clearly a complete different version of that. This is you get to bring back all the information that you want, but it's very dangerous. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry, I, I took you on a whole tangent with when you were talking about the, the, the soul and, and doing this snuff where he kept it in like a little, a little, little box, right? He would open it up and, I've heard about this before. I have a friend of mine who went, I believe it was in South America. And I, th- I think we talked about it on the show, like early episodes, like episode like 18 or something. And they were doing peyote. They were doing this ritual and he needed, they all partook in this powder. It was a powdered form of DMT, but <laughs> though they had to, they had to snort it through the hollowed out finger of a dead monk. So they would all take turns. And he said that when he, when he took it in, he said it felt like somebody shot a 12 gate shotgun to the back of his, just the back of his neck. And he just said, as soon as he went out, he was teleported to this room, to this. It was don't dip out Thomas, but it was checkerboard black and white. And there was a whole bunch of dudes <laughs> in robes. Now, the, the creepiest part was that they acknowledged him. Now, when they acknowledged him, he said that he saw one person that he recognized. And it was his one of his shaman friends who would talk to him about going to these other realms. And that when you died, you would just go on to this other realm. And as soon as he was teleported to the center of the room, everybody looked up at him and he saw his shaman friend, bro. He saw his friend there and he's like, he get kind of gave him like a look and then he just remembers dipping back out. But he was in that, like this other reality for a split second. Now we're talking about guys that for their time were really trying to establish what reality was, what the soul was, what, what makes up the soul and all these different things. So I wouldn't put it past them. And, and Descartes was a very weird guy because he was always traveling around. He was going around. And I think, personal opinion, similar to a young, handsome Manly P. Hall, daddy Manly P. Hall, where he went around the world being initiated or learning about different cultures and different practices, I guess. I believe Descartes did something similar. He went on these trips. He was abroad. And he would study, and I think he was either doing stuff in occultic circles. Again, this is full speculation, but it would make sense because in this book, they make it seem like the Cartesians are like the secret society, right? Like this this occulted group that's in the shadows that's well, able well, to... Well, the Cartesians of uh, while um, Rene Descartes was alive, because they also say that after he dies off, anyone that calls himself a Cartesian is is like a fake Cartesian. They're a poser. And that's, you see that in secret societies where it's like, oh, well, I'm the, you know, we're the right lineage. You know, I came from the lineage of whatever. And this guy was this guy's mentor. And if you look at it, it's like a succession of people to the source. And then what, once the source is snuffed out for a lack of a better term, then yep. everybody ceases, ceases to exist, which would make sense, bro. Right. If, if we're in the secret society, bro, and as soon as you dip out, well, the secret is gone. The invisible college, bro. You know, maybe he was the one that was holding everything together in some sort of metaphysical way. Well, he might still be right. I exactly. mean, <laughs> yeah, well, well, let's, 
don't forget about this uh this dope slideshow to cut it out man. Yeah, let me put this in here so we got we got yeah a bunch of this one's actually an image from the book um yeah so okay so so there's a cup there's another theme here that i wanted to break down which was a little bit new to me and you might be more of an expert but that renee descartes is sort of in this book an example of opposing aristotle yeah that aristotle was observe nature and take what you observe from nature and make that the truth and whereas descartes I think more of like a platonic way. He's like, no, no, nature is actually just this big illusion. He he, he kind of refers mechanical. to yeah. it's mechanical and that the things that we see are literally just specks of dust that are blocking out the light from the original matter and that we convince ourselves that it's, you know, like things and materials and whatnot. But the, the thing that he says that stands out the most to me, and, and here's what I, I rewrote some of this. And he's talking about the difference between observable nature and what Rene Descartes considers God. So Descartes says, God can cause that two and three shall not make five, that four sides aren't needed to make a square, and that the whole shall be no bigger than one of its parts, effects that other philosophers never hesitate to place out of reach of the Godhead. So so it took me a couple times to read this over, but it's basically saying that the world that we live in that's that's bound by physics and these mathematical formulas and Cartesian coordinate system. Even the guy that came up with the Cartesian coordinate system was saying that it only exists because God decides it exists that way. And that if tomorrow he just wanted to decide that a sphere is no longer made from a circle, it would just be so just like he says that two and three shall not make five and that a, a true God can actually break what we would consider these, you know, immutable laws of math and physics and that's a really hard pill to swallow and get over conceptually. And I think it it separates Descartes and puts him on a completely different level of philosophy than a lot of others that are a little bit more approachable that, that tend to stay a little bit more rational. And Descartes was criticized heavily because he was sort of hardcore religious Christian that believed in God, but was also, you know, this huge scientist that had these groundbreaking revelations. Yeah, it all goes back to the Aristotelian myology, Aristotelian physics. For a long, very long time, that was the mainstream. That was what was it. There was nothing else. So by him coming out, and that's what he he established rationalism, which was you know, pretty much Occam's razor. What's observable is, is the one cogito ergo sum, which is I think therefore I am, because he understood that the senses could be fooled. Your perception is everything. That's why I always say perception. Perception is everything because he believed, and this is a very Gnostic, a very Platonic idea, that there could be, just like the brain in the vat jar where the brain is hooked up to a bunch of receptors and your entire experience is something uh, that a mad, a mad scientist is making you believe. Well, he believed that sometimes an evil demon could be outside of reality influencing your senses because when you're dreaming you feel like you're perceiving everything but you're yep. not really and this is a good segue because i want to i want to relate this full circle where the reason it stood out to me so much is because one of the things i had talked about was before that the cartesian coordinate system had come to descartes in a dream now i wasn't completely off on that 
what ended up happening was, and there is this pulling up the article now because we're talking and about. I, and I want to note too, when we're talking about in a reality where two and three don't have to make five, that's something that could probably happen in a dream state, but not in our waking state. So we know that, and this is not really talked about a lot, but Descartes had a series of dreams that I'm going to get into it. And, and it's a few, it's an article or an essay, I guess, by Alice Brown, Descartes' Dreams. On the night of 10 to 11 of November of 1619, Descartes, then age 23, had three dreams, which he considered came from on high and took the trouble to write them down and interpret them in some detail. So they were important enough to Descartes that he wrote them down and deciphered his dreams. Now, unfortunately, his own account of them is not extant, but the account given by Balia, which is uh, this biographer of Descartes, fairly close to Descartes' own, so he had like his own written account. Now, the thing that stood out to me was that there is this correspondence between Descartes and a friend. The guy's name was Beekman, and he was a doctor in Middleburg, and they he was they were writing letters back and forth, and Descartes told him, and certainly to tell you openly what I am planning, I want to expound not on the brief art of Lowell, because he was also studying Raymond Lowell, and it kind of got to where like Descartes was studying science, and then it kind of got into mysticism, the occult, magical realm well, of things. And, and from my interpretation on this book is that he started with science, but he, he man, the, the guy had like so much self-reflection that he was like, the things that I'm learning through science might be completely wrong. Well, that's so that, that, how far back do I have to like, how far back do I have to go so that I'm looking at truth first and then I can figure out the difference between a truth and, and incorrect information and lies and stuff. And that and was that's how he went to mysticism. And that, that was a very big thing with Descartes where he would talk about meditating and th these dreams, he had them in this, this warm room, this hot room, because there was an oven in the center of it, whatever. He be he believed in meditation, looking within yourself and eventually your own self. If you knew yourself, you were going to be able to recognize whatever it was that was going to happen, right? The truth or whatever yeah, he, it is. He turned his kitchen into an actual sweat lodge. Yes. Did, yes. Did DMT and went out of his body for up to three days at a time. So not the brief art of lull. And he's talking about Raymond Lowell, Dr. Illuminatus, by the way, I've, I've talked about, about him on the, <laughs> one of the first people to construct an analog or mechanical computer. I don't know what the name of it, but he came up with the first concept of a computer and it was to prove the existence of, of his God. He wanted to convert Muslims to Christianity. So check this out. This is Descartes. And certainly to tell you openly what I am planning, I want to expound not the brief art of Lowell, but... An entirely new science. I remember when I first read all of this because I, I the other book that I want to cover kind of sort of hinted at a whole bunch of weird stuff. And by which all problems that can be posed concerning any kind of quantity, continuous or discrete, can be generally solved. It is an infinite task, not for one man only, incredibly ambitious, but I have seen some light through the dark chaos of this science, by the help of which I think all the thickest darkness can be dispelled. 
mind you, I read this a while ago. And I was like, man, that's, that's really weird. Like, what's he talking about? Some people say, oh, he's talking about analytical geometry. He's talking about, you know, the, the, the biggest, the Cartesian coordinate system, all these things. And then reading this book, I go, oh, new science. Dude is snuffing whatever, heading out into other dimensions. That's the new science where you're able to get out of your body and just blast off into space, Joe Rogan style, right? And see it firsthand. And don't see don't it f- read it in a book. See it for yourself. Yeah, so when I read that, I said, okay. Dimethyltryptamine. I got to hit that button. So... <laughs> I took a while to get to that button. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Saving that up. Check this out, bro. Because this is where it gets good. We're talking about maybe potentially breaking out of this dimension. And when you're talking about how you said about he kind of left books and 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 kind of left that 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 rational world and went into mysticism. He was supposed to be looking for Rosicrucians as well and the Brotherhood and all this stuff. Well, it reminds me a lot of John D. It reminds me of how he at one point said, hey, there's no more knowledge. I've learned all the knowledge in the world. I have the biggest library in Europe for, for his time. I have the Liber Vacan, how to make homunculi all the, over there. I have all these crazy books. I've already got learned. Cow blood. I know how to float on water. I, I have everything. Invisible. Yeah, everything. I need to talk to outside influences that are not of this reality in order to learn more. And this is where... It, where I go, okay, this, I think this is what Descartes was doing. He, we're talking about Descartes, adds that the genius which was exciting in him, the enthusiasm with which he had felt his brain heated since some days before, had foretold these dreams to him before he went to bed. And human intelligence had no part in it. So the night that he was having these dreams... He talked about how and human intelligence had no part in it. So what are you getting at? He also talked about being able to control his dreams. In these dreams, he was able to read. And based on these three dreams, which they're they're pretty extensive. If you if you want to look into them, just look up Bernard Descartes' dreams. There's a, there's a whole bunch of things that happen to him in the in these dreams that it's all symbolic. But the idea that he was able to read in his... I don't know if you've ever been able to read in your dream. Well, I, we're I know talking I about lucid uh, lucid dreaming in one aspect, but that's one of the reality checks is that in dreams, typically, like, letters aren't the same as real letters and words aren't the same. Like, it looks... It's almost like AI version of words and letters, but right? It's like it an inception. He's, he's in a dream, and then while he's in this dream, he goes, is this reality? He starts thinking to himself, am I dreaming or not he looks at some people he's like are they automata are they real why am i hunched over he's like is there a demonic force right now influencing me but that one part and human intelligence had no part in it so is he hinting at some prophetic dream some divine intervention some outside cthulhu-esque force giving him these dreams trying to talk to him and then from when he gets out of this he's like i've made the biggest discovery of all time i've discovered new science and they recount that exact moment in this book when he when he makes that declaration so so let me that and that's why thomas that's why i'm having a hard time discerning if this is actually 
Well, like I said, we're, let's just call it a biography for now. I'm on the fence, but I feel that that it has so much accurate information that even if it's written from a standpoint where it's fiction. But let me let, let me start out because I, I actually found the very, very redacted version of this. This guy goes on to like two full pages talking about how much this is truth. But this is the core nugget. So as the book is starting out, the author, Gabriel Daniel, he says, I am a philosopher and the philosopher is always to speak the truth. Full, full stop, period. I certify from this time forward that I mean to set off my history with an air of truth, such as may be able to persuade the most incredulous in their reading of it, and that what I say is most undoubtedly true, period. But such is the nature of prejudice that after all the pains I have taken to appear credible, I am conscious, notwithstanding, I shall not be believed. Let it be how it will. So that, the way that he wrote this, like, gives me chills, you know? It's like, chill down my spine is the way that he's like, listen to me, I already know that you're going to read this, and you're going to say that I'm just full of BS, and that I'm just making it up, and it's a dream, and then it's allegory. But he's like, I'm telling you that this is 100% true, that if I respect myself as a philosopher... And that I say it's true, then it has to be true, or at least that he believes it's true. And he's not, you know, overgrandizing everything and exaggerating. So that one, that's what makes me on the fence, man. Like, otherwise, I'd say, oh, yeah, this is total satire, total fiction. But the, the length, unless it's this weird reverse psychology of like, I'm going to tell you it's true, but you need to realize that I'm only saying it to make it. It's like those movies that say based on a true story, but it actually never was based on a true story. Inspired by true events, yeah. By, by yeah, yeah, like, like a Blair Witch kind of thing. Like this might be like an early version of that too because I'm not, I'm not familiar with old books that take such a, a hard-panned sort of approach like that. And I want to – the description, uh, part of the description, A Voyage to the World of Cartesius is a fictional travel narrative. With ele- elements of science fiction and philosophy. Is it, though? Because the author did not say it was fiction. And whoever does say it's fiction, these tend to be the people that read it 100 years afterwards. So, who? I don't know. It, it's a hard one, man. Listen, dude. Listen. That's why this piqued me so much. And we can take it above and beyond. I mean, we can continue. There's a lot more that I want to get into because... As well, a, let's get into the, the book itself because cause we can go, get into the car all day long. But we've got some, some things that only are going to be found in this book. I want to I quickly talk about... I believe it's the etymology of... Because he's talking about enthusiasm. When you're enthusiastic and it literally... Literally means be inspired or possessed possessed by a god. That's what the word enthusiasm where it comes from. And let's see here. It's like French enthusiasm and directly Latin enthusiasmus from Greek. Divine inspiration, enthusiasm, be inspired or possessed by a god, by rapt, be in ecstasy. And I believe I forgot which god it was. I think it was I don't want to say Dionysus, but one of the gods. Well, Dionysus, Bacchus, um, yeah, they had these like frenzies where they would they would be in absolute ecstasy to the point where they would just tear each other apart and animals apart and eat them raw just because they were so overwhelmed with divine presence that and it's also their linked mortal to bodies the, couldn't handle it. The Blair Witch, the Blair Witch trial, the witch trials, <laughs> where enthusiasm was also a part of the 
the symptoms of being awake. Wait, and and it talks about in this book that Descartes had these fits of ecstasy, which I know um later people said was, you know, he had all sorts of seizures and maybe he was epileptic and maybe all sorts of things, but this discounts it as these fits of ecstasy where when he would go off to this outside universe and learn things and come back and just kind of pop back in and like oh by jove i've got it you know <laughs> come back with some like huge revelation out of nowhere which makes you think right thomas because i've always wondered how some researchers go so hard in the pain i've talked about this before where they're acquiring ultra i call it ultra terrestrial knowledge where they're talking to entities outside of space and time outside of reality in order to draw from that because some of these concepts dude are so wild some ideas are so crazy, so unique that you go, how'd they even think of that? How'd they even come up with that? And sometimes it seems like it's it's simple, but yet you it didn't think simple, about it. Dude. Well, yeah, well, the way once it's explained to you, and that's that's one of the cool things about knowledge is once the most complicated concept is explained to you in a simple way that you understand it enough to explain it to someone else in a simple way, it turns into one of those things that took thousands of years and i'm being generous to for anyone to understand and then all of a sudden everyone understands it mm -hmm. um so which is crazy but it's also so very fragile because once that information is lost it might take another thousand years for someone to come across even if it seems so self-evident yeah let's get into the book bro I'll, I'll, okay we so, haven't even so talked me, about the book all <laughs> yeah let me let me get into the book here so so the book starts out and it's it's talking about how the guy that originally wrote it was inspired because he came across this letter written by Father um, Mercenus. I think that's how you pronounce it. And I look it up, and Father Mercenus is the guy behind something called Mercene's Laws, which is when you take the length of like a piano string or a harp string and you cut it in half, it basically like doubles its octave. Or I'm you know it. I'm not going to get into the math and the actual definition of it, but but this guy was in the 1600s defining kind of musical theory and mathematical theory so the guy that writes this book comes across one of this guy's papers called meditations and in it this is and again i'm um translating this into modern english but this is the author of the book talking about his original inspiration and he says the strange mix of contradicting opinions from this meditations paper provoked my curiosity and made me question the truth for myself I found a guide to conduct me to the country to which no road was passable by horse or foot, coach or barge, land or sea. I struck up an acquaintance with an old man about 80 years, a man of, par a man of parts, that had formerly conversed with Mr. Descartes. He had such a zeal for the tenets of Descartes that it bothered him for anyone to speak against Cartesian philosophy, and he had given himself up to this opinion so that he could in no way suffer anyone to deviate so little from it so he's talking about this old 80 year old dude that was a contemporary of the car that was such a hardcore cartesian essentially that no one would pass this guy's purity test so he latches onto this guy and he says that the old guy broke all contact with anyone that called themselves cartesians because they no longer had the zeal and observance of the first cartesians and that everyone nowadays builds systems according to their own preference and allows themselves the liberty of adding or removing whatever they want from the platform Descartes created. So he's basically saying, like, people read Descartes, they're like, oh, I get it, it's so simple. And then they start putting their own stuff onto it and giving it their own spin. 
And he's kind of saying like, no, no, you're not the genius that came up with it. So you can't just kind of like start adding things or removing things to it based on your own preference because you're losing the entire image by the time you do that. So I'm not going to pretend that I understand the difference between like all the different variations of Cartesian philosophy, but this old guy that he comes across is a hardcore Puritan and he couldn't be any more of a staunch Cartesian if he wanted to. He's a hardcore fanboy of Cartesian. And yeah, he's he's a hardcore fanboy. If you really think of even history itself or any idea where it's piggybacking off of all ideas before it in some way, shape, or form, or even a modification of an idea before it, right, where they're adapting it, so it went from Aristotelian to Cartesian, from Cartesian to whatever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it goes down the line of succession. But... This is why it screams secret society to me, where it's no, our lineage is linked to the original OG guy <laughs> and our, right? Because you have, for example, Freemasonry, you have a bunch of different branches of it. Christianity, you have a whole bunch of different branches of it. You have a whole bunch of different branches of religion. Who's right? We don't know because it's like how this guy's saying, it's like, well, once you start perverting it, it's going to get diluted down the line, right? It's like a cosmic game of telephone, essentially, is what it is. So, so the author meets this old guy and he says to the old guy, and again, I'm, I'm rephrasing this. And he says that, um, sir, I am more inclined to neutrality in this affair than you can imagine. Basically saying like, look, I'm a, I'm a sponge. Teach me what you want to teach me. Maybe I'll become a diehard follower just like you are. And he says, I have determined to dive to the bottom of the cart philosophy. I'm going to go deep, uh, which I only have a dark and confused knowledge of having never studied him in his own works, but only in the books of others. When I read that, I was like, oh, that's me, right? Like, I, I very rarely <laughs> read the original writings of all these ancient philosophers. I tend to read, like, summaries and reinterpretations and translations. So at a certain point, you're just learning about these people through a million different lenses. So when I read that statement of, I only have a dark and confused knowledge from the books of others about this guy i was like man that now this book is speaking to me all of a sudden and i think this is where my my nipples started to get just a little bit hard that's where it's, yeah that's where it starts to really crank down once you get past that first the first few pages are like what is what is this he meets the old guy he talks about all this arcane aristotle and descartes and you're like all right this is just going to be like a, a thick ass philosophy book but he says this part he says that and this is the guy writing the book talking to the old man I have but a short time, so I inquired whether the old man had any communication or letters or friendship with any good Cartesians in Paris. The old man replies, trouble not yourself, you still have two months, because the guy was basically paying this old man to stay with him and for him to be his mentor. So the old guy saying, don't worry, you got two months to chill with me, which you must stay with me, and that's about as much time as you need. Because I shall in little time receive news from Descartes directly, <laughs> whereupon we'll take such measures as to much shorten your journey. So he's like, don't worry about it, bro. Like, you're going to learn everything there is to learn about Cartesian philosophy over the next two months. Like, don't even worry about it. Like, it's just going to happen. And he says, the writer goes, but, but Descartes's been dead for 40 years. <laughs> and the old guy says... I should be so sorry to have let that word escape in another's presence, but I let it slip purposely at present to heighten your desire of hearing from me those things which few in the world are acquainted with, 
and which will presently surprise you and the knowledge of will convey to you trice to the end you desire. So this dude's saying like, oops, <laughs> you know, like, oh yeah, yeah, no, I talk to Descartes all the time. What do you mean you talk to Descartes? Descartes's been dead for 40 years. You cock tease. <laughs> <laughs> I said that. Oh, did I say that out loud? Yeah, cliffhanger, bro. and then they cut the commercial. And it's like tune back in next week. <laughs> yeah, bro, this guy is. Yeah, as soon as I read that, I was like, mm, "What are you? Bing, bing, bing. What are you getting <laughs> at, noon?" So yeah, continue, bro. I'm sorry. <laughs> so the so the old man he uh he emphasized this. He says, "Hear me, you must know that Cartesius, like the ancient leaders of sects of philosophers." avoided publishing all the mysteries of his philosophy some he reserved for particular friends which i had the good fortune to be one all the discoveries he made which he might thought be of use contribute to morality or serve in any progress to the knowledge of natural beings he made public but prudence advised him to suppress others as some might have been converted to evil use the immortality of the soul is one of those where he was obliged to observe that method and is certainly one of the most important articles in philosophy to prove this in a plain and familiar intelligible way such as shall force the mind to give assent and not leave the least scruple behind is to undermine the chief foundation of libertinism and atheism and that's the mystery which i'm about to teach you bam so he, he said pretty much people use it for evil as well right well, well, that that it could be used for evil, and because of that, it's one of the things that Rene Descartes did not publish to the public, that he didn't put in his diaries, and it was only kind of given to his friends, because if you knew how to capture the immortality of the soul, it could fall into the wrong hands. It's essentially what he's talking about, which is that hoarding secret society of knowledge, keep it from the profane. Which makes me think of just that, and... I think this is what the elites, some elites, no, they, I, I believe that they, that they are able to somehow sort of reincarnate. Now I, I've talked about the immortal alchemist extensively and how that plays a role into everything else. And, but it wouldn't make sense for, with Descartes because he died at 53, but did he really, right? Like after reading this, like, no, did he th this book says he, he didn't. And and they elaborate on it and they, they give you a definition that at least makes sense to me. So we're talking about Aristotle and we're talking about even Pythagoras comes up in this in this story or biography, whatever. It makes me think of Plato's Agrafa Dogmata. So the unwritten doctrines. And it's what I think is the occulted, these practices, the real OG shit that only the ogs that heard it from their mentor this guy is being mentored right by this guy who was mentored by some other guy by by the man himself so he learned it directly and very secret society ish rose verbal transference of the knowledge and then you learn it but as soon as that guy dies it's gone right? it's gone forever but it's never written down it's never done anything and i think that I think that magic has been a lot of the magic has been lost by that way where, you know, it was the one master who knew it, passed it down to his people. That guy kind of sort of didn't really do anything else with anybody else kind of showed it, taught one person and then he took it and it was just like a game of telephone again, back to that concept. 
So, uh, all right, this is this is where it gets a little bit deep for me, and this was the first huge light bulb that went off that explained this concept. Because, like we were talking about before, it wasn't just that Descartes had this idea between the body and the soul, but that the soul wasn't throughout the body, like was kind of conventionally believed. It didn't it didn't exist in your extremities. It had to exist in your brain. And the way that he comes to this conclusion, I I think I've got the like the dummy's guide sort of summarized little steps here. So he mentions that someone talks to him and they, they mentioned the, the caduceus of Mercury and that one day Descartes proposes this design that the caduceus of Mercury, which is God that was sometimes made by Jupiter's order to give use and that the caduceus could separate the soul from the body that you could like, I'm just going to be, you know, simply you'd like tap someone on the head and it removes the soul from their body. And that this caduceus represented the principles of Pythagoras's transmigration. And that this concept is where he started to focus in on, okay, the caduceus might be an actual thing. And that there really is a way to physically remove the soul from the body. So that one was was cool because that's that gets into this woo-woo area, but this is like a like a scientific version of that, right? So he talks about the actual location. So here's where I'm going to I'm going to quote some of this from the book and he says the first conclusion he drew from the idea he had talking about um Descartes coming up with this idea is that it was not extended through the whole body as is vulgarly taught he showed the falsity of that master reason which is said to confirm men that wherever you prick the body the soul is sensible of pain and he disagrees with this. So he exposes this by two different experiments. The first one is that a person who has lost an arm every once in a while, they get like that phantom arm feeling um, and that the very existence of that phantom arm feeling perceives from, uh, from a time when an aching in a place where the finger used to be. So because you can still feel the pain, but the hand doesn't even exist anymore means that the soul is still there but the soul can't possibly be part of the arm and the hand. Cause even if you were to chop someone's <laughs> legs and arms and everything off. Right. And if, if you just leave their, their head and their torso essentially, so they can keep surviving, the soul still exists. You still have full cognition and full reason. So for that reason alone, the soul could not possibly exist in your arms and legs and elsewhere, which is actually sort of groundbreaking. Like to, to actually think that like, actually that makes a whole lot of sense. So then he says the second uh, experiment is that a blind man who uses his staff to counteract the loss of his eyes and that he can take like a wooden stick and use that to distinguish between water, earth, and grass, whether the floor is rough or smooth. And he perceives all this by his staff, yet no one claims that his soul is in that staff. (laughs) And that's like, man, what a great simplified version of saying like, yeah, okay, because you could technically use that staff and feel around and the way that it vibrates still affects how your nerves pick up that vibration. So you're like, okay, that's soft ground. That's hard ground. So, so taking those two premises that the soul can't live in your extremities and that you can take an inanimate object or a bone or a piece of wood and use that to sort of, um, you know, like as an ancillary appendage and still give information to your soul, that that means that the soul is essentially like the guy behind the computer. It's almost the homunculus in your brain, right? He's the one that's controlling everything. And the body is just this mechanical sort of body suit. And he said, and this is, I'm going to, I'll stop after he talks about this one. He says, the impression of objects upon our body 
consist only in the vibration of nerves and fibers, and they are unnecessary for the soul to be part of them. And just as the vibration caused by the touch of a softer, hard, or rougher, smooth body communicates itself to the hand by the mediation of a blind man's staff, and that as the staff is extended from the hand to the body, it's instrumental to the soul for the perception of the qualities of the body. So likewise, if you were to draw all the nerves out from the brain to the hand, it would be instrumental to its perception of the body that the hand touches. So again, he's just kind of saying that your body is just a whole bunch of nerves just spread out and that you could essentially take the, the final nerve, whether it's in your shoulder, it's in the tip of your finger, and connect that to a piece of wood, like a blind man's staff. And now that piece of wood, technically all it's doing is just vibrating the nerves, which then go all the way up into the brain. So technically, anything that vibrates your nerves is just part of this weird physical plane. And that it's like your soul that's kind of sitting behind that and saying like, oh, I feel pain because I'm the soul. And I know that this vibration in this particular area of my body means pain, but that consciousness, that's the soul. And that it has to live in the brain because you could chop again, you could chop the arm off and you would just still be able to feel that pain. Yeah. I've, I've heard about, I don't know anybody personally who's experienced phantom limb syndrome, but Back have to you the, seen the fake arm experiments? Yeah, where they do the mirror and then you're on one yeah, side. Yeah, dude. I mean, that's, that's we're talking about the same. Have you ever done it? I haven't done it. I would be afraid to, to be honest. <laughs> but maybe we should one day. Maybe yeah. we should get up and, and do the actual. Or you do the, the 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 feather and then you get the hammer and you just freaking smash it. This is how ahead of their time these guys were. They were wondering what is consciousness? What is the stuff that we feel? What is all these things? And back again to cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. The only thing that he could prove was that he was a thinking thing. So, yeah, continue. So, so therefore, at least I'm a soul. If nothing else, I'm a soul because I can think of myself. Yeah. So, and that was the only thing that was essentially true to him. Exactly. Okay, so, so I'm part of, you're part of my unreality and I'm part of your unreality because I can't prove that you're thinking, Tom. Thomas right now I, I don't even know if you're if you're real bro you could just be a, a mechanical device that feels no pain and therefore I don't feel bad if, if the worst thing in the world happens to you does this I podcast can't. even matter dude I mean <laughs> well he does in this book at least they make a delineation that if you were to come across a person he's kind of describing an automaton but you could come across a flesh person that looks and moves and acts exactly as a normal person would but it's only when you engage in a conversation with someone and can determine if they're rational, if they can hold a conversation. And only after you make that impression, can you basically assume that they're a real person and not just an automaton. And this actually is extremely important because we're going to, man, <laughs> we got so much to cover, but that some people are automatons and that there might just be a homunculus controlling the person with no soul and no logic they're just repeating just these programmed instructions constantly which sounds like brainwashing slash mind programming but man again they break it down into 1600s sort of uh philosophical version of mind control yeah go ahead bro because i want to get to the homunculus okay yeah we're start going so so descartes He's talking about the soul has to be somewhere in the brain because all it's doing is coordinating these vibrations through the nerves. So he says, okay, there's got to be at least three criteria for where this place is. The first is that 
um, it has to be at the action where the object at the same time strikes two organs of the same sense should make no more than one impression to the soul. So but basically what he's saying is that the soul can't be split in two. It can't be in your left eye and your right eye uh, because the loss of one doesn't actually like chop your soul in half. So it has to be, it has to exist in a single place. It can't be like your two kidneys, your two lungs has nothing to do with symmetry. Second, it must be very, it must be near the very source of animal spirits that by their means, she might easily move the members. So now he's talking about the reptilian brain mm-hmm. and sort of like your breathing and your fight or flight and just your, your basic primal instincts so that the soul has to be somewhere located in control of that. Again, I'm thinking about the homunculus in the chair with all the levers. It's right called the Cartesian the theater, by the way, it has nothing to do with rented a car, but called cartesian theater which the homunculus in the brain and then in that homunculi the homunculus well, see, it does in... have to do with Rene Descartes. he just didn't coin it that way but we're yeah so kind of sort of and then the third rule for where the soul has to live is that it must be movable that the soul causing it to move immediately might be able to determine the animal spirits to glide towards some certain muscles rather than others and this one, this one seems a little bit abstract, but man, since I've been researching adrenochrome and adrenaline and how adrenaline affects the body, this is ex- he, what he's talking about here without realizing it is hormone regulation. So he's saying that this, this location of the soul also has to control not just your instant reactions and how you react to pain, but it has to react to just your emotional state. And as he says here, how the spirit glides towards some certain muscles rather than others. An animal spirit is adrenaline. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll make that claim that when they say animal spirits, we're talking about adrenaline and the things that make you act like an animal mm-hmm. where you lose your rational mind, which is just an adrenaline overload, essentially. So he says, conditions nowhere to be met, but in a little gland called the pineal or the canarium, you know, as a, as an, um pine cone, uh, situated between the concavities of the brain, supported and encompassed with arteries, which make up the lasus choroides. Oh, I probably mispronounced that. But it, this is where he says, based on those three, three criteria, it has to be a single thing. It has to be at the very center of where all the nerves meet, and it has to regulate hormones. So he pinpoints this as the pineal gland. So, bam, that's that's how he isolated the pineal gland out of all the other places in the body he came across it based on those three sort of criteria when did frankenstein when was frankenstein was that 17th century or was that it was definitely after this mary shelley because i'm trying to think how the hell they knew about well mary shelley frankenstein i think was after uh the illuminati so after 1776 so Frankenstein. Because there's a whole, there's a theory, yeah, 1818. 1818, yeah. Because there's a theory that Frankenstein is actually a story about the Bavarian Illuminati. So it. Can well, there the right other, the other conspiracy is that it's based off of true events, right? It's not just a, it's a story. How we're talking about here, a story. But Mary Shelley's husband was obsessed with the occult, obsessed with alchemy, and. There was actual experiments, and and I think that's where we get the word galvanized, too, was from experiments with bodies that they were trying to animate through electricity. And I could be 100% wrong on that, so don't quote me. But, yeah, I'm just wondering and trying to piece together why, how, what, what would they know, who would be their source for understanding what a pineal gland looks like, where it is. And maybe they stole some and so, grinded so it So in the, in the book, I'll get back to the book here. So he says... 
this is now at this point this is the young guy talking to the old guy and the old guy is talking about when he was friends with the cart so the old guy walks into a room where the is basically in a sweat lodge kitchen and he's blasted out of his mind so he says um very early one morning uh he entered his classical german kitchen with the classical german stove and set to himself the thinking as he was used to doing and two hours later the old man walks into the room and he says i found him leaning over the table his head hanging forward supported with his left hand in which he held a little snush box having his finger near his nose as if he was taking a snush and as for the rest he was immovable held with his eyes open the noise i made entering the room caused him not to stir and i had the patience to observe him half an hour postured in that manner without his perceiving me in the meanwhile there happened an adventure that much surprised me there stood upon the cornish of the wainscot in the stove a bottle of queen hungary's water and i was amazed to see it descend with nobody coming near it passing through the air towards the cart the cork came out on its own and the bottle fastened itself to his nose and hung there for some time and with a and with some familiar demon like that of Socrates had inspired him with all the fine things that he taught us. And he says that he awakened at the start, striking his hand on the table and says, this time at last, I have it. And I thought him still in a dream, but he sprung up from his chair, transported with joy and without even seeing me cut two capers in the middle of the room, repeating, I have it, I have it. So the old guy says, I burst out with laughter to see this frolic, a thing not customary with the cart, being naturally a grave and melancholy temper, who hearing and seeing me at the same time became red and afterwards fell into laughing with me. I was urgent with him to give me the reason for his joy and rapture. And the cart says, to punish you for having observed an indecorum unbecoming of a philosopher, you shall know it soon. Two days later, he imparted to me the mystery. So I, I love this story here because it's like the old guy walks in on the cart. The cart's blasted out of his mind on a DMT trip for 30 minutes, he says. At least 30 minutes. It could have been as long as two, two and a half hours. And that a bottle comes and it floats through the air. The cork pops out like sword in the stone Merlin style and affixes itself to his nose. And what I understand is this is almost like a smelling salt. So basically the cart, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Descartes out of his body and he realizes, okay, I want to get back into reality now. And he knows that the only way to do that is to make his mechanical body wake back up. So he actually in his spirit form takes this bottle of smelling salts off a shelf somewhere and brings it over like a ghost. You know what I mean? And sticks it into his body's <laughs> nose and that wakes him up. And then the soul is able to jump back into his pineal gland. And then all of a sudden he's like, I've got it. I've got it. And this is where he basically discovers reality he discovers the ultimate reality and truth at this exact moment uh, so this is a little bit storyteller-esque because like how convenient is it that you just happen to walk in the room right as the cart makes his greatest epiphany and you see exactly how he did it but i want to believe this as being true just like he says you know i'm a philosopher i, I have to tell the truth bro i want to believe too and what does he say the death of a philosopher so it's almost like when he's when he's what did he say at that last end of it? It's like you, I'm gonna punish you for what? Well, he he's basically saying like, for walking in on me and seeing my my secret little ritual, I'm gonna punish you by teaching you about it. So now you're gonna be plagued 
with knowing about this great mystery that you know you're not gonna be able to contain to yourself anymore yeah you bitch is like this is what you get for us so so here he is so here he is dropping the knowledge and again i i try to summarize this knowledge dropping because it's like the entire book almost so he says like mercury's caduceus i have found the secret not only the union of the soul and body but also how to separate them when i please i have experienced it already that was the product of the meditation where you surprised me the other day and i seemed to you that i woke all of a sudden coming from a far from a much farther field than you could possibly imagine he spoke in such a serious and positive way that he seemed to be earnest and descartes continues here he says it'll be your fault if you're not convinced of the truth after what i say and after the experiment this is the most curious secret in the world and i am resolved to commit it to to very few but the adherency which you have manifested until this time unto me will not suffer me to be reserved in anything. So he's like, you've proved yourself to me that you're capable of handling this knowledge. And this is going to be the deepest, dopest knowledge you're ever going to get. So like strap in. This is Descartes talking to the old man at this point. Yeah. Cause we're about um, to go deep homeboy. <laughs> so, okay, here we go. He tells me that while being fixated on the union of soul and body, he found himself in such a strange ecstasy that he was not capable of expressing himself clearly, nor could he conceive of it when he was in it. Again, DM, you're on a DMT trip, right? You're, like You've observed the ultimate reality, but you can't put it into words because you're in a completely different uh, plane of existence at this point. <clears throat> uh, he tells me that it resembled a trance because there is no more use of the senses. One can neither see, you can't hear, nor can you feel the impression of external objects unless they're extremely violent and then there's an end to it so he's like you're gonna look like you're completely out of your senses and the only way to bring yourself back is what he says an extremely violent action someone slaps you or you know you get stabbed or shot or something crazy then you'll snap back but otherwise you're just in this crazy trance and he says that this this state is different because the soul has perceptions of itself and it was apprehensive of the cessation of organic functions, which in a trance is not so. That more discoveries of truth can be found this way in one minute than in ten years of the ordinary means of reading books, which knowledge of truth filled the soul so pure and so satisfactory a joy that there's nothing more true than what Aristotle says, likely having the same experience, that the complete happiness of man in this life if there is any such thing, consists in the contemplation of God and natural beings. So that's that's kind of the ultimate truth that he's like, okay, here's what I'm about to drop, knowledge of God. You're, I'm going to tell you who God is, how he operates, how he works, everything. Yeah, no big deal, right? I'm just going to teach you about everything you've ever wondered about. So... So this is the the outer body experiences. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. The the guy writing the book, he basically is talking to this old man and he's like, man, so you know Descartes and Descartes dropped all this knowledge on you. Can you drop it on me? And the old guy's like, don't worry, Descartes going to teach you for himself. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, yeah, yeah, you still talk to Descartes. And I'm sure at this point he's like allegorically, right? And he's like, no, dude, like we're actually going to teach you all about it. So, so Descartes or uh, the old man, he goes on this trip with Descartes and the old man recounts his experience. 
and he says that uh, my soul and he and it's it's interesting in this book they start to refer to the soul as the she so they'll say like she left you know the body they're talking about the soul at this point because the body is supposed to be like the masculine mm-hmm. and the soul kind of feminine in this you know very like alchemical way so he says she had a mind to disengage herself from the body to see what would be like the event of that separation no sooner had she wished it it was so and the farther he experienced what it suggested before was that the machine of the body had all its organs sound and free and as the heart and the heart and the stomach the circulation of the blood the filtration of the humors uh, which is kind of like the regulation of hormones um, all those natural functions all the motions performed without the notice of the soul and will go on regularly in its absence so he's saying that once the soul leaves the body you can still function like you'll like you'll go through the normal motions of a normal person even to the point of getting up and saying hello to the family and eating the breakfast and going out and i was thinking about if you ever go on like a really long road trip and your mind just checks out and you get there two hours later and you're like oh i wasn't even paying attention that whole no, entire time like, i'm just here, missing Thomas. two hours of my life because you just kind of like you know you just zone out a little bit and you and like the homunculus takes over um so he's saying that as the soul is busy contemplating the operation of her body at some distance from it, a fly fortune to tickle it in the face and the hand raised itself into place, unseated the fly just as if the soul was in the body. So it's true that the greatest part of motions in our body, which we attribute to the soul are in fact owing to the soul disposition of the machine. So he's saying even to the point where if a fly lands on your face and you swat it away, that just happens naturally. And this ties into like where he thought animals didn't have souls because, you know, every animal does that same thing where an animal can flaw us, you know, or like dig for a flea or whatever. But it doesn't mean that they have a soul. And this is goes into his whole like mechanistic universe approach. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where animals just have it, it's I think he calls it instinct or something like that or. And that gets into a whole bunch of other stuff. But, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But a, a lot of people are going to get triggered when you're talking about pretty much an MPC type of thing where it's an empty vessel. And Oh, we're only getting started. But it's going to get super offensive <laughs> in a second. So, <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, okay, so he's, he's talking about this astral projection. They don't call it that. And I, I made this note on these are the dangers of astral projection, according to Descartes. And he says... Bless me, I said to my old gentleman, this is the, the author of the book talking about his mentor, how expedient would be for that person to so passionately see the country as I do, that Mr. Descartes' soul, returning from a voyage in France, found his body in the same posture in which it was left, yet the soul was not fully satisfied, she was unacquainted with the way in the means which led to this condition. So be, saying like the soul comes back, sees the cart hunched over the, the table and starts freaking out because his soul has never been separated from the body before and seen this out of body experience. So understandably going through this weird, like you said, is this a dream state? Is it real? Is it fake? So the soul considers this a hazardous exploit and that once being reunited with her body, she might never be disjoined again till death should cause a final separation so first the soul freaks out because it's like whoa is my body okay like it looks really weird right now it looks like i'm dead but i'm not dead because i'm like i'm still thinking so i'm still here 
But on the other side, it's like, but if I jump back into my body, maybe I don't get to astral project again. Like once I jump back into this physical prison, maybe I never get to escape. So that almost becomes this, this danger of astral projection is that your soul might become so attached to being outside the body that it, you might like hesitate jumping back into your body, which will be fatal essentially. Have you ever had an out, out of body experience? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, drug induced basically. Oh, okay. That's not. not Well, I mean, Descartes too, right? Descartes is snuffing DMT here. (laughs) But I'm saying naturally where, cause I've had, I've had a what's natural though, but what's natural the the where you lay down and you either follow the Monroe Institute tapes and you are able to MK ultra. No, they say that you're able, if you lay back and, and you fall asleep, almost trying to like get up right where you're trying to sit up like this, that when, once you fall asleep, you're, you're able to, you know, your, your soul is able to, or your astral body, whatever is able to peel away from, from your body i've had a waking dream before and i've had sleep paralysis i don't think i've ever had i I don't think i've ever astral projected i always fall asleep before i can get to that point because i'll stay there and they say stay perfectly still that's me too and it's like relax your toes relax your feet and then it's like (sighs) and your body will make your nose itch or something because it's natural to not sit still like that so it's like your nose will start to ignore it right your ears start to itch or whatever it is ignore it and then I just end up falling asleep for whatever reason. And, and honestly, in this context, that like ignore your body and your nose itching, that's basically saying like, let your soul override the mechanical body, like take full control of the mechanical body, um, which might in fact, like you're giving so much focus and emphasis on the soul aspect that you're able to remove the soul from the physical body. So it, yeah, let's, let's keep going here. Okay, so and, I've got... it, it reminds me of like a heavy indica, bro. Where you're falling into the couch, you know what I'm talking about the, the couch, the couch lock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where like you're tumbling and you feel your body tumbling. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, so, so this is an important point. I'm, this is a perfect segue because we're talking about how important the snush box is in the middle of all this. And honestly, the first thing that I read from that newspaper article from 1776, it was talking about a snush box that once you sniffed it, you could send your your soul out of your body learn things and pop back into your your head again it didn't talk about the cart it didn't talk about any of that i didn't even find a cart's name until we peel back these layers and get into the 1600s wait so this so, is a real thing thomas like there's other concepts of this but later on yeah yeah absolutely i mean so the the article from 1776 was just talking about that it was known among learned gentlemen that there was a, a special herb that if you snuffed it, that you could learn information from different realms and different worlds and bring it back into our reality. And this, again, this was kind of on my Paul Benjamin blood dive. It was like, man, there's got to be other people that were experimenting with this. And here it is. So, so here's the snush box. This is from the book. And he says, meanwhile, the snush box, which I've mentioned, his body held it in his left hand as the cart called the mind that before his ecstasy, he had taken this tobacco snush mix and he could not tell, but so extraordinary, so extraordinary in effect might've been produced by virtue of the tobacco. So he's saying that it's not the tobacco that's 
that's sending them out on these crazy astral projection fits. It's the other thing. And that the tobacco is essentially just diluting it so that you can take a direct hit of it and not, you know, completely blast yourself out. So he says that which he took was an unusual kind, which a merchant of Amsterdam had brought over from an island near China and presented him. It was extremely strong and Descartes had to cut it. It had mixed a certain herb dried to a powder whose name he would never acquaint me with, nor the place where it grew, although he presented me with a great quantity of it. So Descartes like, yo, bro, here it is. Here's a lifetime supply, but I'm not going to tell you what it is or where it comes from. But like, here's all the stuff that you're ever going to need. It's that good shit from Amsterdam, bro. And so, this, from China, from China yeah, to Amsterdam to Paris. This past this past week, I went on vacation, bro, and I was at the stop at a truck stop, and I went to go use the bathroom, and there's this guy washing his his hands. You want to you want to snuff of this, bro? No, you literally. Astral project with me, bro. I see him take out his knife uh, with something on the, in the other hand, go like this. <laughs> Hit it real quick, wash his nose off, and just walk out. It was one of the workers, bro, at the truck stop. I mean, it was, it was Coke, right? <laughs> yeah, it was Coke. He uh, wasn't learning from philosophers. That dude was just trying to stay awake for another Or trip. maybe his homunculus was, because we're going to get to his homunculus. <laughs> I, I can't wait to get to that. We're getting, we're getting there, bro. We're getting there. Go ahead, bro. Oh, man. So, okay, so he's talking about Descartes taking the snub. He says, he laid a sufficient dose on the backside of his hand and gave it to his body to take. And at the same time, it had this prodigious effect on his brain for all the vapors raised there since his last takings were dislodged and dissipated in an instant. He observed it was only the particles of the tobacco scattered in the fumes of the brain and that those of the herb, which he had tempered with it being not so fine and having very little motion, fastened themselves in the nerves that caused sensation and made them looser than they were before. This is crazy to me because he's basically saying that the tobacco and this isn't exactly correct, but the tobacco is like a more general effect and that it's not, it doesn't have a specific effect on the brain, but that this drug that they were taking, as he says, very fine particles that attach themselves to the nerves. I mean, he's describing, you know, molecules that are binding to your receptors because mm -hmm. that's essentially what they're doing, right? You take a drug. And those molecules are floating in your system and they bind to certain receptors. And those receptors, the binding is essentially just it, as he says, like vibrating. So he's got it down to a science, literally. And he's describing it in a way that he's so far ahead. And, and we're not even talking about the cart. We're talking about this guy that wrote the book, Gabriel Daniel, in the 1600s, is talking about freaking chemicals binding to your receptors just in very vague ways. This, this blew my mind when I saw this. But he yeah. says that seeing this because again Descartes is seeing this happen he's seeing the little tiny particles trigger the the nerve endings and vibrate them he's seeing it visually so Descartes seeing this no longer doubts but he concludes it to be the herb which he mixed with the tobacco that caused his trance and took away his senses and that the tobacco at the same time was unharboring all the fumes that might have um, been in the brain leaving the soul with the entire liberty of knowing and reflecting on itself as she had then experienced. Again, just reconfirming it's not the tobacco. It's definitely this drug that's having the effect. After which, the smelling salts, which was sufficient to brace the nerves afresh that serve for sensation, often used to recall the persons that swoon away, and that the soul took the bottle 
brings it in the air to the far side of the chamber to his body. And therein it consists exactly the magic of which I suspected the cart guilty and moistens his nostrils with it. And I want to point out that 1694, every time this guy writes the word magic, it's got the K, which predates Aleister Crowley by Damn. 200 years. He, he, he put K on physics. He put K on magic. He put K on optics. He put... And this is the English translation of the French version, which still predates alistair crowley interesting very interesting and i don't i've always known magic with a k to be like a crowley specific yeah. thing but this, yeah. you know two centuries before crowley was even you know a, a glint in his in the reptilian's eyes so mm. yeah i also found um, that interesting so so he's talking about descartes has a smelling salt that his soul brings to him and it snaps him back into place because what it does is that the drug makes your nerve endings what he says loose which is actually sort of accurate because like your your uh, receptors become saturated with all these different drugs and chemicals that instead of binding to the receptor that's close to them, they start spreading out and and triggering other receptors, which is why people say that they can smell sounds and they can you know like um like like taste colors and things. It's because all the receptors are just completely saturated, and this is kind of what he's describing in, in a different way. I don't know. I'm pretty sure I've asked you before, but have you done dimethyltryptamine? Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, not five meo though, right? The regular and then DMT. Yeah, the the one that came from the ayahuasca vine of some kind. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty sure we've talked about it before. I'm just wondering if you, do you have a breakthrough? Yeah, if you got any good uh, fans or followers, just send it in. Send it in to whatever uh, address Juan has listed, and and we'll do a review on I the DMT. I don't have those. any, but I'm gonna start a PO box. No, I'm not gonna. Sn- <laughs> I'm not gonna snuff things. Strangers or stand- fans are sending me, bro. That's like so asking for death sentence. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So I'm gonna summarize some of this so we can get into the hardcore stuff. But the but the young kid is basically saying, "All right, Descartes is such a genius, and he's got the the mysteries of the universe unlocked, and he knows how to detach his soul, and he's got all this information. Why does a dude die at 55?" Uh, especially when you can you can live until like you're in your 70s or 80s so it's like why did this dude die at least 15 to 20 years before his life expectancy Mm -hmm. so the old guy's like well Descartes didn't actually die what happens is that just like he had walked in on him and he had been blasted out to outer space for you know two hours of the dmt well another time Descartes is gone for even longer than that and his friend comes in the room but his friend is not in his like inner circle that knows about this drug and knows about all these like secret teachings. And he's freaks the hell out because he sees the cart looking like he's either dead or lifeless or in the actual recount that he went into kind of like a fever and he was just talking nonsense and that the friend then calls the doctor in. the doctor comes in. He's like, Oh yeah, this, this dude's going through a fit. The only thing that'll solve this is by bloodletting because again, we're in the late 1600s. So they didn't have any like actual medicine or medical practices and people out there getting triggered. Maybe we still don't right now, but the, the general, uh, you know, treatment for people that weren't acting right was just like cut them open and let them bleed. And maybe some of that bad blood will just like flush out. Right. So the doctor starts doing this to Descartes while Descartes on like this crazy DMT trip that he can't come back from. And he dies because of the doctor's intervention, trying to bring him back into our reality and and essentially the book is saying that if they had just left the cart alone eventually he would have come back into his body 
and would have lived for another 15, 20 plus years. And because he wasn't actually sick, he didn't actually die. And since his soul was not in his body at that moment when the doctor killed him, when the soul came back to reunite with its body, the body was no longer fit for the soul. And this basically turns the cart into a ghost, essentially. And because he can't reunite with his body, he doesn't ever actually die. Hence, he's still alive. But he's only alive in spirit form because the body's been taken away from him unexpectedly. And this concept of your body being removed from you unexpectedly, being very, you know, important distinction here, that kind of makes it so that now your spirit is kind of trapped in the spirit world forever, essentially. Or at least... To the cart, he never wants to leave the spirit realm, so he stays there forever. Yeah, and the, the upside down or the limbo or something. And it makes me wonder because in this book, right, they they bloodletting, they drain him, he he dies. Yeah, they, they said, um, let's see, um, he was hand-blooded in the foot, so they, they connect his hand to his foot. And they're trying to like cycle the blood, like, <laughs> and they did something called cupping glasses um, and other violent remedies, which which it so exhausted and altered his poor body yeah. that in a short time it had spent all of its strength and its natural heat began to faint, lose itself little by little, and a deflection of his brain fell into his breast, and in a word, became a mere cadaver. So this is like the doctor's killing this dude. The the mainstream account of him dying is supposedly since Descartes loved meditation he really likes sleeping in and he he believed that the best thinking in meditation is done in your bed right it, it, people or hunched would, over the table on <laughs> people would walk in and be like what are you doing in bed at 11 o'clock he's like what are you talking about you know this is I'm taking my time and when he got in I think he was working for the queen or somebody at the time he ended up and I could be getting this wrong but the the gist of the story is correct where allegedly, according to them, he died because he needed to start waking up early and the shock of having to wake up early and being sleep deprived made him get tuberculosis and he died from that, allegedly. So, and now you're telling me this, I go, hmm, did they bleed him while he had tuberculosis? I don't know. I mean, that- well, and that's the premise that this book is saying is that he didn't have tuberculosis. His body was just in shambles because he was away on like a long ass stint. He'd been, he'd been snorting DMT for three days straight, essentially learning all the information in the universe. And the doctor comes in and, you know, kills him essentially. Damn dude. He messed up. He shouldn't have been snorting so much DMT, dude. So, <laughs> so, so the young kid, we're, we're going to skip forward a little bit here. The young kid's basically like, bro, you're telling me that, Rene Descartes snorts DMT and just learns all the information of the universe. And the old dude's like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we did it together. So the young kid's like, well, hook, hook me up. You know, I want to snort DMT and learn about the universe. So we're going to skip to the part where the old man gives him some of this DMT that, again, came from Descartes because he gave the old man such a huge supply that he just had it for, you know, a lifetime supply of it. So the old man cuts this kid some and he says, um... My soul was no sooner out of my body than after he had sniffed it. So he sniffs it and just immediately, bam, soul detaches from his pineal gland. Um, And my spirit tells me, and he says, she said in a language spiritual that she was about to tell me strange news, that I am no longer embodied, that my corpse is to be interred at Stockholm 
and no and she was not afflicted so it's like the body doesn't mind that it's now or the soul doesn't mind that it's now out, out of the body so he's talking to Descartes now and he says that my soul has uh, three different directions and that her will was inclined for the third heaven the third heaven according to the division of Cartesius makes the world and it's the last of all which is the farthest removed from us that the first heaven is nothing but a vortex placed in the earth whose center is the body of the sun in which celestial matter composes that vortex, carries us, and makes us turn continuously like other planets. Oh, this, this is the perfect one to come up to. He says, so this, this, that's the third heaven, or the second heaven. or the Sorry, that's the first heaven is this vortex in our local area, right? That's With the, the sun, sun in the middle. Correct. The second heaven Dur- is... And- Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if you know, but this was during a time where it was, was it heliocentric is where the sun is in the middle, geocentric is when the sun is in the, uh, where the earth is in the center, right? Where everything revolves around the center. Correct. And again, again, this guy, the the guy that wrote the book was born seven years after Galileo was killed. For being right. For proposing, (laughs) for being right, for proposing the heliocentric (laughs) model of the earth. Yeah. Okay. Um, So the second heaven is incomparably larger that in which we are so he's saying okay here's our world and and the moon and jupiter and just like the observable space that's sort of this first heaven the second heaven is so much bigger that it takes up all the other space in which we see the stars which there are many suns and each sun having itself a vortex of which they themselves are the center as our our sun is the center of ours so this guy's describing multiple galaxies at this point so it's like okay the first heaven is like our earth, heaven, sun, our solar system. The second heaven is all solar systems in the entire galaxy and perhaps multiple galaxies. And then he says the third heaven is all of matter and all of definite extent, which we conceive above the stars and is void of any bounds in respect to which the space of others might be considered as a point. So if you consider the Cartesian system, it breaks down once you get to the third heaven. It exists in the first, it exists in the second, but a second you get to that third heaven, now you're in that realm where God can say two plus three does not equal five. Um, so, and that's how he breaks down the first, second, and third heaven. I'm trying to find which solar system model they had at that time. Yikes. Okay, so it was it, it looks like it was geocentric so the earth was in the middle and everything revolved around it which well and which is why galileo was put to death essentially but but descartes is is saying here he's describing a heliocentric model he's yes. saying that the sun is at the center of our local heaven the you know the first heaven but and that within the second heaven there's a bunch of other suns that have their own little first heavens and the reason I'm bringing this up is because there's the idea. So it's Copernican heliocentrism is by Nicholas Copernicus and published in 1543. This is 1694. Okay. The reason I'm bringing this up is because there is some belief that the sun is actually a portal to another dimension. And you're talking about multiple suns at the center of multiple solar systems. And I know this is going to trigger a lot of people, but they talk about the firmament in this freaking book. They talk about how there is a firmament. There's things being held back. So this idea of the multiverse and multiple dimensions again, and I, 
continue, bro, because I want to get weird with this. We're get we're getting into it. So here, <laughs> this this section I actually titled is of WTF because this is this is the young kid hearing all this stuff about the old guy and the old guy went on the DMT trip and the cards doing DMT trips and he says, "I knew not what to think. I never took him for an enthusiast. This old man that had given it me." And surely, thought I, this story was too well to be pursued as a dream. I then conceived that it might be some mysterious allegory containing all the secrets of the sect of Cartesians, of which she would afterwards give me an explanation. So he's like, all right, bro, I get it. You know, you're talking in riddles and yeah, you flew to outer space and you're talking about the the sun and galaxies and third heavens. What he's like, the all right, fuck? But, but tell me like the actual story, right? Like, OK, I get it all. But like, what does it actually mean? And he says, I applied myself finally to reading of the cart and I compassed him during the fortnight. And although it cost me many headaches occasioned by the too great intention of thought that I understood the consequence and that all he said was far from allegory and that he ought to be taken in a literal sense. So again, th- this is the writer. Maybe it's satire. Maybe it's that like reverse like psychology mm-hmm. of I'm, I'm telling you it's the absolute truth, but kind of like a wink wink i don't know if the wink's in there so so this kid's saying like okay so you're saying you actually snort this drug and you actually separate your soul from its body and you actually go into outer space and into the first second and third heavens and you're being literal you're not being allegorical so now he's like all right well if this is all true he's starting to get freaked out because he's like i know that you just said descartes died and turned into a ghost because he couldn't get back into his body so obviously there's a risk involved so the young kid is asking his mentor like reassure me that this this crazy you know unnamed herb like it's not going to kill me so he says my old friend returned from the country sent me a letter and the next morning said that he would see me in 24 hours and that i should put myself in readiness for a voyage I waited all day with great impatience, but seeing at last he did not come, around 10 o'clock I went to bed. Only a half an hour later, being awake, I was amazed to hear my curtains drawn and all sides of my bed, the casement of my windows, flew open with so vast a noise to see by the assistance of the moon my old gentleman in the middle of the room and with him um, habited in an unusual dress. I was seized with sudden dread, The hair on my head stood upright and I sweat all over. The old gentleman approached my bed and said, You are fearful. Take courage a little. Don't you know me? I know. I know you, I said in a trembling tone. (laughs) But what could I have thought to see you in my chamber without entering the door, without such a noise or havoc there? What you should and ought to think, he said, is that a spirit separate from the body may enter anywhere without a key and it does not need the convenience of a door. And for the noise, it was first to wake you and then for the pleasure of surprising you and putting you in a little fright. So this is the old guy basically like, oh, yeah, I just like, you know, if I'm going to be a ghost, why not scare people every once in a while? It's kind of fun. So (laughs) so he mentions that like he's having fun with it. And he says, meanwhile, I I thought all possible endeavors to compose myself. I was still fearful. I was under the strong apprehensions there might be sorcery and witchcraft in this case. Under the pretense of guiding me into Descartes' world, they designed to convey me to a witch's Sabbath. On the other hand, I feared to affront these gentlemen's spirits, 
who for the most part understand not will and humor. So he's like, on one hand, this might be a demon that's trying to steal my soul and bring me to a Sabbath. But on the other hand, if this is the legit Rene Descartes and this old dude, like, I don't want to offend them by, by questioning, you know, like, are you a witch? Mind you who's, they, they screw you. Mind you who's writing this too, by the way. He's like super religious guy. Right, he's a Jesuit. French Jesuit. French yeah. Jesuit, yeah. But... So he, he's afraid that there might be, you know, witchcraft afoot. And this might be just like the devil trying to trick him. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, the, the devils are. A lot of these DMT, they're, they're typically named after devil's root and, you know, witch's yeah. thorn and things. So here's the reassurance. He says, gentlemen, you make a profession of a sect that gives its maxim that a man must not assent to anything but the truth fully and clearly manifest. And that this is what distinguishes you from all others, especially philosophers of the schools. The conversation I had with these gentlemen a fortnight ago, a critical reading of Descartes' sense, combined with my present circumstances, create doubt in my mind, of which I should be glad to be cleared before we go any further. Will you take kindly what I shall propose? So he's like, look, I'm freaking scared. You guys are scaring the hell out of me. I don't want to offend you. But let me just, like, ask you some questions to make sure that, like, we're on the same page before I snort this drug and we fly to outer space. So they, so Descartes, or um, the old man says, we will hear you readily and you shall have the satisfaction you demand. Just settle and compose yourself because you seem a little disturbed. Resolve yourself that you need not fear and that you will receive no harm. So this is as much as they're going to give him. Like, all right, dude, don't worry about it. Like, we're cool. I got this from my homeboy in China through Amsterdam. Like, it's legit. Would you be mad, bro? I showed up one day, like, an astral form. Hey, Thomas, you want to go <laughs> to the dimension, bro? And I'm just, like, ghost form in, in your room. Just, like, you're like, what the fuck are you doing, bro? I'm just like, come on, dude. Let's go to the fucking moon. <laughs> I'd, I'd pull out the, the huge vial of salvia. I'd scare the shit out of you, bro. Oh, man. So, uh, he says, oh, hold on. I'm getting all excited here. I don't get the um, salvia out. Don't do it. So, <laughs> so he's saying that for you to understand, you must be in purely spirit. Yet I perceive different colors. I see you form the figure of man and you look like beings extended. Um, and Father Mercenus, who's this guy that originally he writes this meditations paper that inspires this young kid to go on this adventure and meet the old dude. Um, he says, it's easy to answer and plainly expound the evidence of true philosophy that the soul is a thinking substance, that it's neither figured nor colored, and that pure spirits, um, although we seem to have a face and hands and feet, but we don't have a face or hands or feet, uh, and that anyone that kind of considers that the soul has face and hands and feet or a form or color or that can be described in any sort of physical way is automatically wrong. This is essentially uh, this philosophy that the old man is trying to drop on this kid. And he says, to fully make you comprehend how you see us as these colored and figured, extended with uh, face, hands, and feet. He's talking about his ghost form, right? Like, how am I able to see you as this old man if you're formless and colorless? And he says that uh, the soul, while united with the body, cannot behold another soul as herself she is. She cannot speak. Um, So basically, your soul, as it's trapped in your body can no longer see other souls that are not in their bodies because because as your soul is that little homunculus behind the brain it has to use your eyes and it has to use you know your nervous system in order to experience the outside world but if you remove 
your soul from your body. Now your soul can see other souls and it can again, mm-hmm. enter this like DMT astral projection realm where now you can see these realities that are always around us, but are filtered out by our physical mechanical bodies. And he says to the end, you might know as we are here that we'll make you understand our thoughts and the design that brought us here. Um, and that I will not have you imagine for the purpose that you were forced to frame yourself as a body or some matter, but only remind what Descartes taught you that to see an object and to uh, regard into your soul is nothing else than the perception of an extension. So he's kind of saying like you seeing like me looking at you Juan, and seeing like your face and the colors and just like your form it's no different than me tapping like a blind man, just tapping you with a stick. Mm -hmm. Like even though our, you know, our, our senses and our vision, we kind of see as like the truth. It's no different than just poking at you with the stick. So that's again, this is like mind blowing stuff, the way that they explain it in such simple terms. So he's describing vision again. And this is, it's interesting because they focus on how vision works. And this is probably one of the more complicated aspects, but they're, he's literally breaking down like, how to make a 3d rendering engine right how light is emitted from the sun that's at the center of our first heaven and that everything that we perceive is just a vibration coming from that original matter of the sun and that color and form and everything yeah so they lost so, me at that part because again it gets very well okay so, well hopefully i can i can break it down and the very next section is the little black homunculus so we're, <laughs> we're getting there we're getting there So here's a vision. He says, what you perceive in a body in the place where I am, um, there is no such thing. And it's, it is sufficient that your interior organs should be moved in such a matter as if a body really was there. So he's saying, even though you see me, all this is, is just the nerve, the optic nerves in your eye, just vibrating, telling you that there's something here because the spirit is able to tell those nerves to vibrate. Yeah, Yeah. So he says that, the thing I am now doing is actually operating upon your optic nerve to make you know that I am here. That is the thing which causes you to see a body, though in truth there is nothing to see. And I act upon that organ of sight to make a body appear. I do the same with your hearing so that you find sound and words. I impress emotion upon the strings of your nerves and these vibrations and undulations are agitated by the motion of a tongue. So again, he's like, I'm just making the air vibrate to make it sound like I'm talking to you, but I'm not saying anything. You don't see me. I'm just a spirit. But because the spirit has control over the physical realm, it can just vibrate your nerves and make you see anything it wants to. And he says that we are taught by the body of Christ is under the appearance of bread. Nothing more is intimated that the body of Jesus Christ is truly there where the bread was. And it seems to us, that where the end of the bread may appear is where the body of Jesus actually is. <laughs> and that God acts upon our senses so that, and this is deep dude. So that where God produces the motions and makes the same impressions of bread as it did before. So when our Lord is presented to himself to St. Magdalene in the form of a gardener, it was acting upon her eyes just as the visage of habit would have done and not by clothing. So he's saying that like when the, the, the trans uh, substantiation in the Catholic mass, right? You take the host and you say, this is the body of Christ. And they ring the little bell and it actually turns in the body of Christ. He's explaining that even though it still looks like a cracker, that's because Jesus came in 
and he replaced himself where that bread used to be. It's now 100% Jesus. But because you're a soul inside of a physical body, you would never be able to see Jesus. So he just replaces the atoms with Jesus particles, right? <laughs> and, and it looks to you like it's still the same host because you can't see anything but that host. But really, it's no longer a host. Like those atoms have been completely replaced by Jesus particles. That's the best way that I can sort of interpret yeah. that. But he's he's saying that that same premise of a ghost that can make you see things is the same way that Jesus is making you think that that host is still just a cracker. But really, that's God tickling your optic nerves, being like, "Oh, it's still he's a like, cracker. Don't worry about it." He's <laughs> like licking your eyeball. Yeah. Your optic uh, like <laughs> Jesus came in there, just like. Ugh. In your ear, hey Thomas, yeah, go ahead and eat that cracker, dude. So yeah, dude, they they lost me on that part when it was getting into all that, but it it makes it's making me think what background this guy had. Obviously, very religious background, so all the religious topics and everything that he talks about, it's because of his religious background. But this is so far ahead of his, of of the time, right? And I mean, it's all. Uh, written very elegantly so it just makes me wonder if this guy is who they say he actually was and not just you know what i'm saying somebody else so here's your favorite part man let's go let's do it so this is the little black homunculus so he says this voyage is going to be very long and a world like this is not built in one hour's time and he's talking about to give some context the kid and is meeting with the old man and they're going to go and fly out and meet Renee Descartes. And the old man's telling them, we're going to show you how the universe was created from step one <laughs> all the way to like, they skip over the plants and animals part, but they get from the original matter all the way to an entire solar system and universe and how orbits develop. He, he breaks it all down, but he says in order to get there, it's going to take more than just an hour. You're not going to just snort a quick line of DMT and get all this information we're going to have to fly so far out. He says, I know my soul loves her body very well and would be much concerned at her return to find it incapacitated to receive her. Again, that's what happened to Descartes, right? He gets back and the soul's like, oh, you guys screwed up my house. Um, so he says, a hundred accidents may happen against which no one can give security. We are provided for all of them. Look towards the end of your bed. Good God, I cried out, scared out of my senses. And what do what is it that I see? But a devil is one of your club. Wretched mortal, I'm lost, undone. I'll die without any familiarity with him. I renounce utterly your enchantments and your magic. So here's the, the dude's like, he sees the end of the bed. There's a little black demon. And he's like, you guys tricked me. I knew it. This was the witch's Sabbath. I hate you guys. You know, you guys suck. So the old man says... Why all the alarm? He's not a devil. Although he's black, he's far from being a devil. <laughs> this is the soul of a little black man that waits upon Descartes. To ease you of all your scruples and to squiet in a word or two, I'll give you an abbreviate of him. So he's, he basically describes that this little there he is black right there. moor. Yeah, here, yeah, I got some images. So this little black moor is essentially a homunculus that takes over your body so that when you go on these long voyages, the homunculus is smart enough to get you out of bed and brush your teeth and say hello to all your friends and family so that like we can have Bernie just call like... cops. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but it's a little little homunculus, which, dude, that's what the watcher, the watchers, 
they watch over your body while you're doing your thing in the astral realm. So it's not too far-fetched, and that's why, just like how Michael Scott, the OG Michael Scott, the the necromancer Michael Scott, were like, hey, dude, how do you know so much about this necromancy and this magic and black magic and all this stuff? Like, are you a sorcerer? So it's making me think, is this guy some sort of magician? And he's just writing a... St- satirical bro it's comedy man it's just entertainment we're gonna we're gonna get to that when the guy comes back so it's okay so so he's like don't worry the little the little homunculus dude is gonna take over your body so that while we're gone like no one's gonna realize that you're out of it as long as you don't have a close friend or family member come and have like a deep conversation with you (laughs) because then the jig is up um so you kind of have to make these preparations in addition to that he says that there's three rules to astral projection. So the first rule, you have to dismantle your mind of all the prejudices of childhood and ordinary philosophy. It's strange to see how prejudice the soul sucks in, but by the senses should make such a deep impression on the understanding with time and custom, which the soul chooses for the rule of her opinions. Insomuch that after souls separate from their bodies, otherwise from death, even though during that separation they can in- act independently on the senses, do yet think, judge, and reason comfortably to their prejudice. So to restate that in normal English, he's basically saying that the impressions that our experience going through this physical world um, makes such an impression on our soul that even when the soul is removed from the body, it can follow its prejudices. Like mm-hmm. your soul, just by being removed from your body, it's not just automatically You're still a racist like, piece of shit. Even yeah, in yeah exactly. Form. <laughs> so rule one is you you have to figure out a way to basically tell your soul to be open to things that your current body and your current mindset is not available to. So it's like you know, open your mind, right? That's rule one. Open your mind. The second requisite is that you give orders to this little spirit after which method he must treat your body in your absence. So rule number two is you got to tell the homunculus exactly what it needs to do while you're gone. So it's like intent, right? What, what needs to happen while I'm gone? So he says, it is advisable to let you know that when your soul is in this state of separation, all things will be carried in the usual method, not only your natural functions, but motions caused by external objects provided that you leave the machine mounted in the same matter as it is in the present so that if you're used to waking and at the rise and sound of an alarm or at a certain hour as soon as that hour shall strike the motion of the the the, your eardrums essentially saying as your eardrums vibrate at a certain hour um that that same exact message will be communicated to your brain which will make the animal spirits glide to your muscles again releasing the adrenaline to your body and producing your legs and arms and your whole body the same motions that you normally produce by yourself yet this is now being taken over by the homunculus um so that's rule number two and it makes me think dude i think that joe biden has tapped into this technology because it's like he's there <laughs> but he's not, not really he didn't give the best instructions to the <laughs> he's not all there so it makes me think that he just gave his Hey, dude, just hold the fort down, bro. <laughs> Didn't realize he's like the president of the United States. And Crap, he's just... I got a lot to learn, man. Yeah, I'll be, so I'll be back. <laughs> I don't know, man. So, And then the third one is he says, uh, and, and it gets a little bit murky here, but he says, the body shall walk as it used to, traverse the house upstairs and down. It'll seat itself at the table. 
and as soon as the voice of the page crying dinner sir is ready shall strike upon the ears it'll eat it'll drink and in a word it'll perform every action it's accustomed to the animal spirits never failing to take their course towards certain parts of the body and the presence of certain objects and by consequence producing the same motions in the body so now that all external actions we do nothing but motion is produced this way and this is why beasts are undoubtedly mere machines because their bodies seem at the same time to act with the same variety and uniformity so this is him saying again like because you can leave your body and this homunculus can take over and the homunculus has no soul this is no different than animals just roaming around and even though that they react to pain which is what they call an external object that it's not actually feeling pain because it has no soul so this is where it gets debatable for me honestly can you imagine the relief like oh i'm gonna go on this astral travel thank god i'm not gonna shit my pants because my homunculus is gonna take over my body (laughs) if you instruct him properly exactly if you instruct him properly so 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 he says the only thing that you have to fear so here's the asterisk is in case a friend or family should come visit you because the body without the soul is incapable to main discourse and must answer very impertinent to the thing in hand for between ourselves is only the discourse that we cartesians know those bodies commonly called men are truly men and not merely machines and herein this little negro will be serviceable descartes hath taught him all the motions possible to be made upon the pineal gland and all the various determinations of which animal spirits are capable and how the words are formed in the mouth and how the motion of the muscles stir the tongue and the lower jaw and the lips and how particular words are framed and only the certain motion of these muscles caused by animal spirits by our friend is what gives you a visit in the absence of your soul. So it's like the homunculus can like make him talk, but if they get into a deep conversation, again, the the jig is up because all the dude knows how to do is just move the levers around. He can't actually think new thoughts. He can only go through these programmed NPC routines that you pre programmed him for before you leave your body. I've met a few of these people that were well, and, astral and, and if you want to, if you want to break it down in like a practical real world term, it's almost like you have to train yourself with these repetitious patterns to the point where they're so natural that you can just, you know, do it off the cuff. But, and again, that's like you training your body to do these complex actions, despite your soul being gone from it, which is its own little rabbit hole that mm-hmm. would be uh, crazy. So, so he says that, the homunculus is actually controlling your pineal gland specifically. And he, and he expands a little bit more and he says the little Negro by the various motions, he shall impress upon your gland. And from there, the animal spirits and muscles shall form and that the, and without failure in your, in your mouth, words will be spoke such as answers and questions demand and fear not that he'll make your body speak anything unbecoming of your soul for all say that, Negro as he is, he is no fool. He is Think no, he's no fool. And dude, this whole homunculus, this is part of the homunculus lore. I mean, this is part of the little golden man Taoist, where the little the little golden man runs away and is in the world like a scapegoat, so you don't have to come back and reincarnate. So it's like you're offering to the world. He there, he is just running around, just doing his thing. 
karma free because there's no soul attached. Exactly, exactly. So, so he, so again, he restates this in such a clear way, and I love this part of it. He says, "Think of it this way: it's just like leaving your body in bed. the tr- The trance you enter from taking the snush isn't the trouble. Meanwhile, this little negro shall make your figure, and so sh- and shall so exactly personate you as if your soul had never left, and there'll be no difficulty." The Cartesian philosophy teaches without any sin that many other magicians could not do without first giving themselves to the devil. So this is saying like, this is the, the non sinful way to engage with this astral projection that there's a way to get there, but you have to use magic and you have to sympathize with the devil in order to get there. But if you use the snush, if you use this DMT, then that is a non-demonic way of getting access to this same realm. This is the 17th century. And I'm just thinking about Paracelsus. And I mean, this is natural magic, right? They're using a snuff that is available in nature. It's a Aristotelian idea of spontaneous generation. You get A plus B equals C. So as long as, but then I don't know where the little black homunculus comes in i don't know if he's where he came from if he was captured if it was created how but as long as because this is coming from a religious guy as long as you're using you're using things in nature it's okay in our book because you're not using outside entities to to do any demonic packs right and he's i t- think there's a little bit of that here there's a little bit of like wiccan sort of nature magic here so know. so rule one don't let your soul be prejudiced. Open your mind. Yeah. Rule two, train your homunculus so that it knows how to control your body when you're gone. And rule number three is the most simple of all of them. Rule three is you have to take a little of this gentleman's snush <laughs> and we'll set sail and stand off on the road that will bring us to Mr. Descartes. So that's that's all of rule number three is just sniff this, bro. You Enjoy know? So the ride, sir. Open your mind. Prepare your body with the homunculus and snort this DMT. Welcome to so Hogwarts. Those are the three rules. That's those are the three rules according to Descartes on how to astrally project. Wow, dude! So, I never thought. I mean, it sounds simple. I'm, I'm going to try it tonight. <laughs> That'll be an episode two here. All right. So, so here's he's like, all right, you guys have convinced me. You told me the three rules. You told me this homunculus is going to take over. I don't got to worry about any of this stuff. I trust you guys. So I desired. Um, the old man to give orders to the little black man to suit himself in my person however he would see it fit forthwith it was done and and here i beheld at me at my bed's feet um i saw another before the lady's gate that at my feet i asked very courteously to me in bed um that basically i'm allowed to come back in so he's like all right bro here's my body i'll be back for it you know keep a good care of it i'll be back (laughs) So I, re- I recommended to him the fast, the bolt of my chamber door so that nobody may enter and the frequent visiting of my body day by day, admonishing him to care might always lie in a convenient posture. So he's like, if you ever, you know, whenever you come back in here and zone out, lock the door. And if you do zone out, like lie down as like a normal person would lie down in a bed. Don't, yeah, like... don't, don't let the homunculus out, please. <laughs> yeah. And, and don't like go into a seizure and don't, you know, be hunched over because that'll freak someone out. So he's like intentionally telling them, here's how to do it. So upon this, the old man presented me a dose of this snush. 
I demanded if it was true, for I remembered the story of Appalachius, um, who metamorphosized into an ass. This is the story of the golden ass. At the same time, he expected to become a bird. He told me he carried but one sort of herb, and there was no danger of mistaking it. So I took it, and I sneezed, God bless me, three or four times with mighty violence. <laughs> Hereupon I fell into a swoon, and like that of Descartes, as I described before, in an instant my soul, by the only act of will, perceived her enlargement from the body. So he snorts the DMT, and his soul just immediately detaches from the body. He says, I began from that moment to perceive the strength and prejudice and conceit in obstructing the knowledge of truth that they warned me about, precautioning us on this respect, and yet at the same time, how little care those gentlemen had to make use of the rules they prescribed to others. Um, so he's basically calling them out a little bit, like, all right, you guys, you guys gave me the heads up, but now that I'm here in this astral realm, like, you didn't tell me it was this serious, and I can see that you guys might be a little bit prejudiced too, and you didn't really tell me how to not be prejudiced. You just told me not to be prejudiced. Um, mm. And that's kind of what he's, what he's saying. And he says, the first thing my gentleman would persuade me, whether I would or would not, was that my soul in the instant of separation saw herself seated in the pineal gland. I judged it unfitting um, to begin them with a contradiction. So without going into this crazy, I've got a whole bunch of notes on this, but essentially the guy writing this in 1694, he, according to him, he knows that it's not actually the pineal gland that is this like center where all the nerves meet up because at this point, you know, again, like 50, 60 years after uh, Descartes dies and this guy writes this book, more has been understood about anatomy of the brain. They've dissected it more. So he knows that it's not actually the pineal gland that fits those three criteria that Descartes was talking about, but he's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like go off on this tangent and like start a whole argument about whether or not the soul came from the pineal gland, but it did come from somewhere in the brain so this guy's already saying like you guys are so prejudiced and thinking the soul's in the pineal gland that this guy takes the dmt he sees it's not in the pineal gland but he doesn't want to he doesn't want to get into it because he's got other stuff to learn <laughs> there's a whole so, and that's, that's the thing. end of of part one of four that's the end of part one of four of the book let's, let's go to the moon bro okay so so part one is learning about the drug and learning about the old man and being convinced to take the drug. And at the very end of part one, he sniffs the DMT and they, they rock it out to outer space where he's going to learn stuff. So here in, in section two is where they start breaking down hardcore science. So he says that the first thing he learns is the, the, the concepts of liquid and solids of ethereal matter. And he says that first, a liquid's body is ceased to be confined and bounded by a solid one, so it diffuses itself on every side since its parts are in motion in every way. He's just describing a liquid form, and he's saying that a liquid form will always spread itself out into its container. He just says it in a very fancy way, but again, very ahead of his time, essentially. Second, that upon a solid body offering to pass through a, li a liquid finding all the other parts in motion, it easily makes the separation. So I'm, I'm thinking visually, you've got like a big pool of water and a big, you know, plastic brick. 
And if you put that brick in the water and just start moving it around, the water gets out of its way because the water is just in a constant motion, whereas the brick is not in motion. So he's kind of just describing solid always kind of beats out liquid in this way where the, the, the liquid, since it's already in motion, it's much easier to just get out of the way of this thing that's not in motion. Mm-hmm. So he says, these two phenomena of a liquid body being explained so cleverly and so intelligibly by the principles of philosophy had such a great sway over my mind to oblige me to acknowledge the fluidity of, um, for an absolute accident distinguished from the motions of the insensible parts of a liquid body. I plainly saw matter, which Aristotle himself, under the name of ethereal matter, and taught to be dispersed throughout the world in a most rapid motion. So here he's saying that the original ethereal matter is really just like energy that's all around us, just a constant flow of this like liquid energy, and that it's not necessarily like hard matter that stays in place. There's a, the the three different levels of matter where they're all interacting with one another. Reminds me of Alkindi and the light. We all put out light, and it's interacting with all the other lights, and that is our reality that's forming in real time. So. Then he starts talking about the moon. So I've, I've just got some summarized notes here because the, the book is super deep. So he he's talking about the moon being made out of silver. And this might be allegorical, but this this is him with the car in outer space as they create a new universe. And he says, silver is very cheap and common in the globe of the moon. And it's for that reason that chemists who are always affect the mystery in their words call that metal by the name of the moon so he's describing the reason why these alchemists and chemists refer to the moon being silver is because it actually is made of silver in this in this current example that he's going through he says the the first on the left hand and he's got this huge sort of memory palace he's kind of describing so on the left hand of the memory palace you see pythagoras doctrining his disciples and presenting them with a table book where inside is written three precepts. First, they were to hear him for a full five years without speaking a word to contradict him. Second, that they must lend an attentive ear, especially in the night, to the music and the harmony of the celestial spheres, which only the wise men are privileged to understand. And third, they must abstain from eating beans. Yeah, (laughs) That's that's always my favorite one. So So he's describing this and he's saying that which that is second true. Rule, Those three are true. Like that's real Pythagoreanism. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and the, the second one of, of lending your ear to listen to the music of the spheres, he says that this correlates to the concept of Heraclitus weeping warm tears and a troop of little children hooping after them like two fools. So this is getting into like the more allegorical stuff. And then he says the third, which is abstain from eating beans relates to Diogenes um, mounted upon a crossway stone at the bottom lay a tub expounding an auditory much like singers so he's getting into into that Rosicrucian allegorical speaking a little bit yeah and, I, and the, go ahead de, no this part is like definitely code right That's yeah what absolutely I... yeah absolutely I mean he's talking about Pythagoras and the three rules and then he starts talking about you know, like pools and ghosts and dancing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's definitely in code. I don't know how to decipher all of it. So he, so from here, talking about these uh, the moon, then he talks about the Eucharist, and he 
expounds a little bit more on that uh, transubstantiation. So this one's a little bit deep, but it's it's worth because I took the, the important chunks out. He says, the mystery of the Eucharist is as follows. First, the body of Christ after the consecration is in the same exact place that the bread was in before, but is it is so precisely in the same space that in whatever place it was true to affirm before the consecration, here is bread. It is true to say after the consecration, here's the body of Christ. Again, it's particle for particle, atom for atom. Jesus comes in and replaces it, but it just makes the optic nerve vibrate in a way that you just still see the cracker instead of the spirit because mm-hmm. you're not capable of seeing it. If we conceive that before the consecration there was, that the surface and the substance of the bread, little um, pyramid cubes and triangular pieces filled with more pyramid cube and triangular pieces of bread. And after the consecration, those little spaces are filled with the same exactness by the body of Christ. Again, in these pyramid cube and triangular spaces to me, he's talking about like different molecules and different arrangements mm-hmm. of elements. It's just gets swapped out as like a one for one. And he says that uh, when it said the body of Christ is comprehended in the same dimensions and the same um, qualities of the bread, that it's not understood that it's only the external surface that which terminates the figure of the bread also terminates all the parts in the depths and substance from it, separated from one another by pores and little intervals filled up with air, insomuch that some insensible parts of the bread are put in motion by the air or some other body, this it sounds high level, but what he's describing here is is freaking mind blowing because he's saying that even though it looks like I've got this this cracker in my hand, it looks like a solid object. He's saying that really there's little tiny spheres and cubes and um and um pyramids describing and they're atoms. separated by air. He's and he's describing that that solid mass is actually mostly just the air in between, Empty space, and that these yeah. little things are pushing against each other or pushing away from each other. So that it's not actually a solid object. It's how mind blowing again in 1694 to be describing it. It's such uh, specificity. Mm-hmm. So he says that um, whatever makes an impression upon our senses is only um, through the sensation of our body and that every body has the same sensations as the bread. It'll make the same impressions on our senses as the bread. Therefore, the body of Christ being in the exact same space as the bread it must inevitably make the same impressions on our senses. It must reflect light just as the bread did and with the same modifications. So we see it in the same color and the same figure. It also must be pressed towards the center of the earth by the impulse of the same matter that pressed the bread before. So here he's like, this one is crazy too, because he's saying that after transubstantiation, that little wafer that turns in the body of Christ is still affected by gravity because the same reason that it has to abide by physics of light and seen by your optic nerve means that it also has to abide by the laws of gravity that our body has to abide by. So, and I've never heard the concept before that, that Jesus in spirit form might still be affected by gravity. If you (laughs) believe in gravity. Yeah. So he says that, Gravity must vibrate the nerves of our tongue and insinuate itself into the pores just as the insensible parts of bread. Um, And where this concludes, this mystery, Admiral explained, without the encumbrance of accidents, 
which are kept in service for any occasion. So, so the way that he's describing this is that the way that the the cracker turns into Jesus has now been broken down in a scientific aspect that explains why it looks like a cracker and it tastes like a cracker and it smells like a cracker. But how can that be Jesus? Well, he's kind of just explained it. That's how is because yeah. it's just replacing the physical reality. Yeah, if, if, and if for th- for those listening, whenever you do the Eucharist, just remember this: that at the at the very moment that you put it in your mouth, the Holy Spirit will come by, and He will switch out those bread particles for little God particles, and then you're going to be eating the body of Christ. If they would have explained that to me. In Sunday school, you know, after I was baptized and I was finally, I, I would have totally got it. Like, no, there's just. Well, technically, it's the part. bells. When you hear the little bells ring, that's when the the transubstantiation. The transmutation. Yeah, happens. that's right. The transmutation of the of the bread into the body. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, tra- the transmutation would be the alchemical version, <laughs> where transubstantiation <laughs> is the Catholic version. So, anyways, this is the, I got a, a note here called Comet Riding Wizard <laughs> because. In the book, this guy's describing now at this point, he is out in the universe. Before you do that, before you do that, because this is one of the parts that I wanted to get to. And this is why I think it's kind of weird. Obviously, we know Kubrick and the whole space is fake and gay and the moon is fake and gay and all this stuff. Well, when they're going around, this is the way I interpret it. When they're going around and he's like, hey, there's Plato and there's. Copernicus and there's all these other guys that they're that they're looking around and they almost have like what I interpret as dimensions that they created and in the in those dimensions those cities that they created they have worshipers right because like one of them comes out like what what, what do you mean him do like a handshake or something to prove that he was a Cartesian or something and he's like oh hell yeah secret handshake secret hand that's you know what I'm saying like so he's like they have all these astral groupies up in the in these cities and when they're going through the moon dude and there's like oh there's I think they even bring up uh, Tycho uh, Brahe and all these other guys Mm -hmm. dude they're 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 naming off craters of the moon I mean they're, they're all these you have the Kepler crater you have the the Corp, uh, Copernicus crater. You have all these craters around them. And I, I know people are going to be like, the fucking moon is faking gay. Well, I think... Maybe, maybe they actually live there. Like Copernicus is actually in that crater. Dude, and that's why there have been... there Allegedly, and I couldn't find the pictures, but there are structures, like glass structures on the moon. And why haven't we been back, Thomas? Why haven't we been to the moon why haven't we gone back because you, you can't visit a hologram <sighs> all right dude you know <laughs> so let me let me get to the comet riding wizard all right but you know where i'm getting that's so as soon as i was reading, i was like dude these guys are describing no i, I love the idea because he's he's literally saying like at a certain point we're not going to get into all the minutiae here but he's saying that as he's going out into the the second and third heaven um, that his old man is telling him like, oh, well, Father Marnesis is like lives behind Mars. And this other dude, he lives behind Jupiter. <laughs> so it's like if you want to get the, the information from certain philosophers, you'd have to travel to certain yeah. planets. And that like they just kind of like find their way and, you know, find their little nook and cranny. So it might be these actual craters that they kind of like call themselves home to. And that that would be kind of cool, right? If, if you just were able to look at the names of craters and know, oh, I just got to astral project to the Copernicus crater and I can talk to Copernicus himself. Well, 
Carl Jung said, the moon is dead. Your soul went to the moon to the preserve to the preserver of souls. Thus the soul move toward death. I went into the inner death and saw the outer dying is better than the inner death. And so this idea that all throughout different cultures, the moon is again, the feminine aspect. It's probably the light at the end of the tunnel. Some people have talked about how it's the camera obscura of John D and we're only seeing like the, the universe is this alchemical vessel. And what we see is the opening, which is the, the moon, the opening or the sun or something, you know, a portal. And once you escape through that, you're able to piece out of this dimension or whatever it is. And John D is actually the demiurge. And he's sitting there. He's like, yo, I figured out how to deconstruct reality. Right. So yeah, I mean, go ahead, finish with the, with the comment writing wizard. Cause I mean, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> you know what says, I'm getting at. So the guy, the, the author says two travelers told us from the Western coast, they saw something as an opaque body that they not they knew not what to make of it sailing through the air with wonderful speed they're describing a ufo but it was nothing but a man mounted on an extremely black and condensed cloud <laughs> whose whole accruement looked exactly like that of a magician that was either going to or coming from the devil's sabbath in effect father marcinus who knew him informed us he was a chinese mandarin the president of the magicians of his country whom had often met in our vortex. This was so out of freaking left field that I I couldn't not read this over so many times and make a note of it. What an interesting, like what an interesting picture to, right? You know what I'm saying? Like to paint. How you, a, ch- I, a Chinese Mandarin riding on a comet <laughs> that's dressed up like a magician on his way to the devil's Sabbath. The, and and the father um, Marsus, who who's the guy that wrote this original um, premise on meditations, who also was a Jesuit, right? He's like, oh no, don't worry, that's freaking you know old Mandarin Mao. Yeah, he's cool. He's one of us, dude. Don't worry about him. Yeah, he's just devil. he's just doing what magicians do. That, he's just the, the comet riding wizard dude. And and I had to point out too, or I, I could not notice that him being a Chinese Mandarin, and they specifically mentioned that this herb came from. Uh, an island off the coast of China that made its mm. way through Amsterdam and then made its way to Paris. So maybe this Chinese Mandarin, maybe he's like one of the OG sources of this. I'm reading way more into this, but it seemed very specific that it was a Chinese Mandarin that was kind of like being interpreted as this magician. We got to go find this herb, Thomas. We got to go visit. So I, I've got some theories on what it might be. So, All right. All right. so, okay. So then, now we get into part three of the book. It, it starts getting super, super deep. So it's a little bit more scattered here. And I feel like if you want to get deeper into these topics, you just have to crack open the book and, and read it for yourself. But part three, he breaks down the third heaven of the cart. And he says, this is the same in what the philosophers call imaginary spaces. But seeing the world imaginary seemed to import nothing but what was chimerical and in the imagination he only chose to term it the indefinite spaces. So you didn't want to call it imaginary space because it evokes too much of like, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a fantastic approach, but he calls it indefinite space because it's a real thing. And he says there was set up a party at the time in France, diametrically opposed to the Jesuits composed of those who called themselves St. Austin's disciples who were zealous sticklers for Janus, the Bishop of doctrine 
And he says that they basically did not uh, prescribe the same idea of the soul. And they said that once the soul lasted no longer in the body, as soon as it performed the separation, it had no more correspondence with it. But the author says, I experimented the contrary and that my fellow travelers, meaning the old man and father Marcinus, assured me that as long as the body had its organs sound and free, that the soul could be 10,000 worlds apart and it will see the same impressions as if it resided in it. So he's saying if that fly lands on your cheek or if someone comes and slaps you, your soul can still perceive of these things happening 10,000 realities away from you. And he says that if Descartes' snush had not laxed the nerves as it should have, while I was in Descartes' world, all the occurrences and the eyes of my body were presented with, I should have heard every noise that beat upon the drum of my ears and so on. So they're kind of saying that this, the snush and this DMT that they're taking allows you to sort of disassociate yourself from all those feelings that they're still happening, but you're able to, what he says, loosen the nerves so that it doesn't snap you back into reality, even if someone comes and kind of messes with you. And this is what allows your homunculus to take over your body without you returning to it. Again, it's the drug. It's the drug that's allowing you to stay separate from your body. He says, you are capable of becoming the creator of your own world because the power which you manifest over spirits, space, matter, and extension are all the same thing. This one was is mind-blowing, and I feel like we just need to read it over like a hundred times to really convey that. But Submit. this is the cart talking to him. Submit to the homunculus. Just let the homunculus take over. You are capable of becoming the creator of your own world because the power you manifest over spirit and space and matter are the same thing. So like if you know how to control your own spirit, that's all the power you need to create your own reality. And he's talking again, not allegorically, but literally. So, so here's where he breaks down creating the universe step-by-step. Um, and I'm, I'm summarizing like 200 words of very, uh, very rough to read English, but he says, all spaces matter. The space is extended and nothing is not capable of being so. And this space is therefore an extended substance of the same thing, matter. So he's saying that space and matter are the exact same thing. You can't delineate the two from each other. Just like a fish in water doesn't know it's in water because water is everywhere. To a fish, that's just open space, right? That's just emptiness, but we know that water is actual matter. It's a fluid that they're existing. Just like humans, we exist in a fluid of air and we don't notice it because we exist in it. So, and, and so on and so forth, all the way up the chain, right? Turtles all the way up and down. So he says that in nature, there's two laws that can't be broken. The first, everybody will forever maintain the post and capacity it has been put in and will never change until an external force causes it. If it's in rest, it'll stay in rest. If it's in motion, it'll continue in motion. If it's a square, it'll always remain a square. So this is inertia and a whole bunch of other sort of principles all rolled into one. And which is interesting here because he's saying it's the same exact thing. The same mathematical, you know, principle that causes inertia is the same thing that makes an object retain its form indefinitely until something acts on it, which would be, you know, um, you know, um, carbonization or gravity or what have you. The second rule is that a body always naturally continues its motion in a straight line, 
but that collisions with other bodies disturb it from its course so that a body circularly moved constantly endeavors to get farther from the center of its motion what he's talking about here is what's called centrifugal force and that's when if you were to like take you know take a pole with a string and a little bead at the end of it and spin it around that's kind of this this little bead is constantly trying to separate itself from that center point of gravity and that's he's describing the centrifugal force and an orbit of planets so he says that this body as it's circling around this motion always trying to get away from its center if it's fortunate to get away from its center that as soon as it breaks from that circular motion it escapes on the tangent of the circle that was prescribed and then goes into that straight line he's describing trigonometry at this point sines and cosines and tangents saying that like uh, like if we take the earth right as the earth is spinning around the sun if we were to somehow escape our orbit of the sun the second we escape we don't keep going in that circular motion. We just no, like shoot off in a straight line out into nowhere. And it, and this He's is describing a, this. This is a time where because there was a not a fight, but there was a debate between Newton and Descartes. And this is a time when Newton Newtonian physics were were becoming a big thing. And it's funny because Newton was like, "Hey, I'm going to debate your Cartesian mechanistic universe theory and it's not cogs and things rubbing around with each other. No, 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 no. It's none of that bullshit. It's actually this occulted force. That's just this invisible hand. That's just moving things around. That's what he, he go, he wanted to debunk that Cartesian mechanistic where it's like this cogs and stuff, but he didn't debunk the mind body dualism of Descartes. He well, left and that alone. Also th- this book refers to that concept of the, the invisible hand controlling things. This book sort of refers to that as accidental or this like just random generation. And he's saying, no, no, it's not random. It's it's the way this world works. And it, and this is where this is where my mind blows even more. Like I, I'm out of mind to be blown, right? But he says that rule one, inertia and things keep their form unless something else acts on it. Rule two that things in a circular orbit are constantly trying to get away from what they're orbiting. Mm-hmm. Like that's what makes them orbit and retain and s- sit on that circumference of that orbit is because it's trapped by this thing and it's always trying to get away. And if it does get away, it escapes in a tangent in a straight line. Those two rules, this book says these principles are the source of all infinity and truth, which true philosophy is composed and it's only these rules used in the production of the world. So these two principles of inertia and form and and trigonometry, essentially, that's all you need to create Energy the universe. cannot be created nor destroyed. It is only transformed. I mean, it goes back to, what is it, the second law of thermodynamics or something like that? So, and I mean, and, and this sense. concept of, of orbits. And and it's so hard to to... I guess overstate the simplicity of what he's saying here is that mm-hmm. literally trigonometry and the laws of thermodynamics of you know energy can be created destroyed and inertia that's all you need to explain the entire universe and all of truth and all philosophy are just these two very simple concepts which is an, an appealing concept if you can understand those two then you can understand everything else i don't know if it's that if it's that simple but uh so so now he's going to start breaking it down into steps and this is where it 
it makes more and more sense as it goes. So here's step one. Divide um, in equal parts all the matter comprehended in the entire universe. So just imagine every atom and every piece of, you know, particular matter in the entire galaxy as far as you can comprehend. All of those parts are in, are extremely small, yet they must be less before I'm done with them. They must not be of spherical figure because if they were also shaped, there must necess- necessarily be an interval or void between them. But a void is impossible. Therefore, they must all be shapes and figures, but angular of generality. So he's basically saying they can't already be perfect spheres because two spheres next to each other indicate that like there's this kind of like missing diamond shape between you know, if you took four balls and put them together that can't exist because there's no such thing as complete absence of space space is matter it's the same thing so therefore nothing in our reality can be a perfect sphere it can't be these platonic ideal solids um so that one's that one's huge because he's saying that the reason why there can't be platonic solids is because void is impossible second where the union of parts of matter consists the state they're in one by another so when you've got these two objects next to each other that division between them will last no longer than i shall agitate them in several ways and drive them on every side third since the fluidity of matter is nothing but the motion of its smallest parts agitated in different ways I shall make it a fluid as hard and consistent as it is at present. So he's basically saying anything that you perceive to be a solid mass can just as easily turn into a liquid. All you're doing is just making the particles inside of it just a little bit more flexible to move and spread them out farther. And if you've got the power to command spirit and matter, which is the same thing, then you can take any solid object and make it into a fluid object. Alchemy, I wish he'd sold exactly how you did this, but yeah, he's alchemy. just saying that you can do it. Yeah, exactly. If you're able to manipulate the real world, then you're able to have an effect, a higher effect. And I mean, this is all as above, so below. You know what I'm saying? So then he says, uh, Descartes and father and my old gentleman. So he's with these three dudes now because they, they jump around the universe and they visit other planets and they put together this like honorage, right? Um, and it reminds me of like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure where they like pop and they grab Napoleon and they pop over and they grab Socrates and they just kind of like keep Bro, I still this, haven't like, seen that super movie. group of friends. Oh, dude, you're, you're missing out. Uh, I'll have to watch it tonight. Yeah, absolutely. The first, you have to watch them in order too. Uh, um, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. And then you have to do the bogus journey after that. All right. Deal. So it says, um, Man, he got, this is where it gets into the vortex. And I don't want to get lost in the weeds because there's more fun stuff. But it says that where Descartes and Father Mens and the old gentleman showed me these three different stations in space, they began to agitate and churn the matter. Um, Twenty vortices were created in an instant, each having their motion determined on every side and ordered so that the pole of one vortex terminated at the epileptic of the other or the equator and hence Descartes calls this circle of a vortex which is the remotest part from its poles and if if you had some of the the imagery here just imagine like the world and if you've ever seen like the electromagnetic um poles essentially where it's like energy coming out from inside of the earth and then going back into the bottom and it creates this sort of like pattern that just infinitely cycles through almost like this uh this Ouroboros 
and this is what he's describing as a Cartesian vortex. And he says, every part of the vortex were to be seen out of hand, figure it as angular for generality and move around their center. And there's a mighty grating and clashing occasioned by the fraction of angles that necessarily follow the struggle every part made to turn itself about its center. So to, to think about this in Floridian terms, a hurricane, right? Or a tornado, it comes through and as it's picking things up, they're all swirling around the center. And as those things are swirling around the center, they're all smashing into each other and breaking up and turning into little pieces of debris and, and dust and smoke, right? But it's also kind of polishing these things. And on a little tangent here, this is where I feel like there might be like some Freemasonic code because he's talking about you're gonna get the difference the lodge, between bro. yeah, between rough ashlar and perfect ashlar. So most masons are are said to be taking the rough ashlar of man, which is this like unpolished stone with all kinds of chunks and blemishes, and that a perfect mason knows how to cut that into a perfect square that's fully polished, and that's essentially what what you would call perfect ashlar. And essentially, that's the 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 whole allegory and symbolism between the the brick or the square masonry is that you can take just a random ugly looking rock that's not going to fit anywhere and with the right knowledge you can make exact 90 degree angles and cut it into a perfect square that fits into this bigger building and architecture and hence you know masonry so this Mm. is what he's kind of describing he's describing these angular pieces that are imperfect smashing against each other and they're all trying to form this kind of perfection, but they, they're never going to achieve it because perfection was that original state when everything was just a single mass and space all being ubiquitous. Um, so, so skipping ahead the Freemasonry stuff, he says that um, Descartes is busy in the management of this project, meaning he's creating this universe to show him all these visuals. And meanwhile, the little parts of matter of every vortex as they turn on their sides and rub against each other, evened and polished themselves little by little, still as they became almost perfectly globular, they lost their bulk and decreased in size. It was then that I began to see the consequence of the rules in motion which Descartes had explained. For seeing these little balls take up less room than formerly, and seeing them keep turning around, and their figure rendering them more fit for motion... I perceive them frequently to quit the center of the vortex and gain the circumference. So this is, again, if you think of like the hurricane spinning, this is saying that if something gets sucked up into the eye of the hurricane, typically they're all spreading out to the very outside of it, the circumference of it. Again, exactly how a planet would orbit around the sun, right? We, we remain as far away as possible and we remain on that exact same circumference away from the sun because of this exact same rule that he's proposing here. So uh, let's see here. Yeah, I'm, flat I'm trying to figure out. Our flat earther crowd is not going to be happy with this episode because we're talking about celestial bodies and whatnot. So, so, so here he's going to describe vision. I'm going to skip ahead. Oh, actually here, there's an important part. He says, I wish said you, if you had your body here, you could let in these admiral deductions from the principles I have laid. Now you only see the center of the vortex as a heap of dust and subtle matter of the first element. But if you had your body and your organs with you, capable of the impressions of these heaps of dust, you'd see that every heap of dust I talk about is a sun, 
and that very sun whose splendor and beauty you have often admired in your world is nothing but a mass of the same dust, dust instigated with such emotion that I explain in my philosophy that you currently see. Yeah. So he's like, we're talking about big bricks and smashing together and little dust going on to the edge of the galaxy. Well, that little piece of dust, that's your sun. And like, you know, you on your tiny little planet, like you're not even a piece of dust. You're like a dust of the dust of a dust. Right. Um, so, so his concept of scale here again, feels like it's so many centuries ahead of it. Yeah. It's like you, the, the world that you perceive is only not even, you know, a fraction or even the smallest you, unit of measurement to like the bigger picture type of thing right and 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 we're not gonna be able to get into this minutiae but he he takes this concept and says when i say a piece of dust you have to imagine a piece of sun but that keeps going all the way down so even if you're at the scale where you realize that the sun was the piece of dust and you look at an actual piece of dust here on the planet inside that piece of dust is another sun. So now he's talking about like subatomic particles almost and saying, even within yeah. subatomic particles, those are creative things. And it just, it forever it goes on. all the way down. So, so he says, um, he, he uses this, this concept of the dust floating around the sun to fully describe vision again. So here's where it started making the dots connect for me to give you clear insight on this matter. I need to only suppose one thing which Aristotle, he himself acknowledged. And he mentions this earlier. He says that vision is caused merely by the vibration of an optic nerve. And because of that vibration, a man that falls rudely on his head or walking in the dark runs his face against the post, sees a sudden flash of light like the glaring of a candle. And he says this is because... The way that, like, if you just see normal vision, it's your optic nerve vibrating, which lets you see all these different gradations of color and value. But if you were to just get punched in the back of the head real hard, you're making all of those optic nerves vibrate violently at the same time, which causes just pure white um, because it's it's the same exact concept, which was, I don't know how actually true that is medically, but it, it makes sense in the description that he's giving. So he says that, it tortures naturalists, Aristotle, um, to explain the matter that this vibration causes us to perceive all luminous and bright objects. Upon what hypothesis whatsoever they proceed, they meet inconquerable difficulties. But at the bottom, in earnest, it's no more than this. So he's saying like the con the whole entire premise of vision can be explained by getting hit in the back of the head and seeing white, that proves that all vision is, is just your optic nerves being vibrated and nothing more. It's, it's no more than just a kind of a magic trick. And he says, here is the matter of the first element as it turns around. And I want to, I want to do this one slowly and discuss this one. Cause this is where he actually describes how vision works. Consequently wrestles to get a distance from the center of the vortex. This is matter spinning around in which in its attempt to deviate from the center of the vortex as it's trying to escape and go off on its tangent, it forces the matter of the second element to circulate that it possesses the circumference as well and shoves and pushes it in every way imaginable since there's not a point in the center of the matter of the first element or in its motion where it does not strive to make its escape from the center. So he's basically saying, I think, I might be totally wrong, is that 
this fir- these three types of matter, first and second, it's the relationship between the first and second and that second removing itself from the first and trying to get away, which is also making all the dust and all the third part, it's getting pushed by this bigger second part that we can't see. So all of this dust, it's not the dust that's necessarily revolving around the center. It's just the dust being pushed around by the second version of, of a matter. And that we kind of perceive this dust as matter and that it follows a rule, but really it's just kind of like flowing in the wake of this second energy, which is, which is mind blowing. Like this is a very deep topic to just kind of like throw out there. Hey, it's getting into like dark matter and, and gray matter and everything. These things that we can't even begin to comprehend. Well, that's the invisible hand. I almost see yeah. like the, the, the second element to the first element. That's the invisible hand. Mm-hmm. that's agitating this dust Ca- cause element. and effect. And I mean that, that the actual effect is also another layer of matter but we don't perceive it that way because what we've been led to believe essentially i mean that's yeah and he says it very uh, poetically right and i mean he just words you're you're making it sound way for those that read the book they're gonna know that you're breaking it down so perfectly for them that they're gonna be like yeah what i'm trying I to bring it in modern english because it's, <laughs> it's not obvious the first time you read no, it. So, yeah just reading you'll so find he, out so here he is describing how vision works and then Again, this this one was like mind-blowing to me. Imagine you and your body are in some part of that circumference of the vortex. So we're floating around and spinning in orbit around some central mass. And that you cast your eyes towards the center. So imagine we're on Earth and we're looking at the sun, essentially. There's an abundance of lines of the matter of the second element that terminate in the bottom of your eye. So if you look at the sun, you just see pure light. How does that happen? First, the light, the lines are driven towards the circumference. So imagine the sun in the middle of the solar system and it's just beaming its light rays out in in straight lines in every single direction, right? Full 360 degrees. So these lines being driven towards the circumference, going out towards orbit, are, are constantly forced against the bottom of your eye by the subtle matter at the center making its exit. Thus being pushed, it presses upon the bottom of your eye in a manner that shakes the strings of the optic nerve. And this quavering follows the perception of the object. And this is the most, phenom- the most curious phenomena of physics, where I maintain that the nature of light consists in the restless endeavor of matter to remove itself from the center of the vortex, which proceeds to pressure the eye, causing this sensation of vision. So this is the dude fully describing accurately how vision works that light is being emitted from the center of our universe the sun in straight lines outward and that as it's flying outward if it gets blocked by these little pieces of dust it basically is changing that vibration of the light so now instead of just getting pure white vision just taking over now anything that goes in front of you you can sort of like see the shapes because now those are places where the energy from the sun isn't able to connect directly with your optic nerve and tickle it a little bit, right? It's blocking it. So if I got, if I got a cup in front of me, this is actually blocking the light from hitting my eye and bouncing off of it, which causes me to see the cup in front of me. Cause if the light could just pass right through it, I wouldn't even know that it was here. Um, so man, again, 6094 to break it down in this way, mind blowing. And it would make sense what I said earlier of the sun being a portal to another dimension because it literally 
lets you see this dimension. You know, you know what I'm getting at? Or like a vortex. It, yeah, he calls it, it a vortex. Yeah, vortex. Well, I mean, it literally lets you perceive your reality. Because if we were in total darkness, we wouldn't be able to perceive it, and the light wouldn't be able to bounce off and tickle your right. little optic. And that proves too that our reality is not doesn't hinge on being in the solar system and having the sun, because the sun is just a tiny little speck of dust among many others. So, so even being in this reality, whether you know gravity and and heliocentrism exist, doesn't even matter. That's just how vision works. Yeah, and um, I, I mean, yeah. Space is fake and gay, so it doesn't... At the end of the day, none of this episode matters. None of this talk matters because it's all just a holographic projection system that the the Elon Musk with the Starlink put up there. So so we'll, we'll whip through a couple other deep topics and just like some summaries. So when he, he talks about magic and magnetism, mm-hmm. and this one, he just he just tickles a little bit. He, he just drops just a, a little bit. Yeah, he just gives you the tip of this one. He says, he went on explaining to me all the properties of light and all the demonstrations concerning reflection and refraction of its rays. And, and man, th- this is this is not to be understated again, because the way that reflection and refraction works, this actually relates to sunstone, which we, we mentioned before is an alchemical sort of like main ingredient in creating homunculi and a number of other things. And the sunstone might actually be a certain type of crystal that the vikings used in order to navigate because the way that the um the the comp the mineral is created it basically has like two different angles and the way the crystalline forms and as you hold it up the sun can hit it in a way that you can can sort of like counteract a polarizing filter um sort of way that it blocks the light and using this you can figure out where the sun is in the sky so anyways th- this is the concept of refraction and where a lot of this knowledge kind of came from was observing the sunstone which they mentioned earlier in here and it he makes you think that, of why was it pink floyd has the the where the the prism breaking the single light into multiple rays yeah that that's the concept of refraction yeah exactly so it, it, it just makes you think of other things once you start lining up all the dots of like what they're hiding or what they're hinting at right maybe they are cartesians or something (laughs) and what did pink floyd do a whole (laughs) lot of drugs a whole lot of shit so who knows so he says that um he was very large and copious about that subject for his piece of philosophy together he explains the phenomenon of the lodestone magnetism was his favorite and then the the book again just giving you the tip he says I shall not descend into the particulars of that discourse for fear of worrying my reader and frightening them to which lines cross among and are as terrible as magic. And the sight of Dude. would it be enough to make you shut this book and never open it. And that plays so well into the next episode that we're going to do. Cause it literally revolves around magnetism and the idea that magnetism unlocks the evil demon or the evil devil, right? This hidden God. So, and, and I love too, that like, he's telling you, you're going to snort this weird herb that, that the guy won't even tell you what it's called or where it's from or where it grows. You just know it came from China to Amsterdam to Paris. You're going to snort this. A little black more homunculus is going to take over your body. China, you're China, gonna China, project China. Out into the universe and see the world created but magnetism is just going to be too much for you to comprehend. Like you're not going to believe me when we get to the magnetism part. We got to find I, that book. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if he if he recounts that one. We have to look for it. Because you know who was, and it makes it's making me think, bro. I mean, this is why I love it because it's all interconnecting and it's all coming together. But Carl Jung wrote about Descartes as well, and the next book that we're going to be covering is by Carl Jung. So the idea of magnetism, which he touches on in that book, just making me think what if there's a hidden something else hidden and I'm looking into like Edward Leedskalnin and the whole Coral Castle and how he might have used magnetism and all these other things. So I don't know, dude, it's just, it just freaks me out a little bit. So then he starts talking about the destruction of a world. He's created it. He's ascribed vortices. He's ascribed all the properties and rules of the universe and this is one of my I, I am definitely paraphrasing this but the quote essentially we are all drossy scummy heaps of dust seen as the stain on the face of the sun um this is essentially what this cartesian philosophy is in this book describing vision is just little specks of dust that are a stain on the face of the sun and he says the scattering of those stains which is still a gathering and is easily dissipated diffusing itself far and near throughout the circumference of the vortex will constitute a thin rarefied body just like the air about the earth or the finest part of it and i have observed that at the vortex of your sun is extended as far as the sphere of mercury so again he's describing that sort of like electromagnetic um vortex and he says it extends as far as mercury i don't know if that's true or not but it's very specific And he says that when a star is overrun with the crusted mass in the parts of the third element so that it can no longer push with as much force as it did before, the matter of its vortex towards the circumference and the others that surround it can no longer find such motion, nor can they resist it. So they stretch themselves out and oblige the matter of the weakened vortex to go along them. Therefore, you'll see vortices increase in their circumference with the spoils of another poor vortex till at last they come to the star itself which will be made their sport that is to say they will descend towards the center of some of these vortices and then continue in the quality of a planet turn with that vortex and observe the motions of its conquering star so this is saying that once an object gets close enough to another system it can pull it in and make it part of its orbit which happens and that which which does happen and that in space, yeah. and that over time if these objects are no long no longer able to keep themselves away from the center they essentially get sucked into the sun and the sun eats it which also happens right as the sun expands and explodes it just swallows everything yeah. else in the solar system yeah so he says that we waited for some moments and we saw just what Descartes had foretold the vortex was drained dry the matter of one of the neighboring vortices surrounded and crusted the star and influenced it with a violent motion. But since the star was capable of far greater motion than the mass of a celestial matter encompassed it and carried it along. So so he's basically saying like he saw a solar system eat another solar system. Um, So at this, he said that, the Descartes gives names to principal stars, and he's got a he's got a dozen of them, but he lists eight specifically. The first star is what we're going to call the Sun. The next one is going to be Saturn. To the left of Saturn is going to be Jupiter. On the right will be Mars. Then we're going to have the Earth. Next to the Earth is going to be the Moon, 
And then there's going to be two little ones, which he names as Venus and Mercury. And then he mentions there's another four that he doesn't get into. Um, and he starts breaking down how, why uh, Jupiter has multiple moons, how the Earth has a moon, how, and he mentions, I love this, this verbiage. He says, the Earth made herself mistress of the moon and obliged her to attend her in quality of her planet. For that is the name which is given to the graded stars because their only employment that is left is to wander the zodiac and turn eternally about those who have robbed them of their vortex. Yeah, that's definitely code for something. I mean... Well, he's saying that the the moon used to be like an actual ball, like a active source of energy, but after it's drained of its energy it comes into orbit of the earth and the earth is so strong that it takes over the moon and he, and he gets on into this, this very alchemical esoteric uh, verbiage, but he's basically describing why the moon is considered the subservient feminine energy. Mm-hmm. It's because it has to follow the orbit of the sun or, mm-hmm. or of the earth rather so that the earth is actually in this context, the earth is like the male energy and the moon is the female because it's subservient to whatever the the earth does and he says that which distinguishes moons from comets is nothing but the difference found over the solidity of one or the other for they are they are less solid than comets entering a vortex that receives them and they're not agitated in their turning so he's basically saying that like once a comet gets close enough to a body that can act as its center then that comet can essentially turn into a satellite or a moon. Um, again, this is a little bit dicey for 1690s, but it's it's sort of on par with the actual physics of it. Yeah, so it went from like a philosophy interdimensional travel to a Neil deGrasse Tyson breakdown of how the universe works. And, and, he, uh, and he mentions how the, the moon and the sun affect the tides, which I, I had to look up and figure out like the modern version of it. but he's totally right again where he's saying that the the way that the tides work is that the the sun and the moon are both pulling on the earth so when the sun and the moon are in perfect alignment then we've got high tide because the way that gravity is pulling on the water of earth is it's strongest because the sun and the moon are both in alignment but when the moon is 90 degrees above and so the the sun is pulling this direction and the moon is pulling this direction this is where you have low tide um because now like that that force is is spreading it a little bit thinner Mm -hmm. so as the earth is turning against these two motions right so as as the moon rotates around the earth it's pulling on the water but the sun is always pulling on the water even harder so as these things are all moving in motion the earth is spinning and as the earth spins between these two things pulling on our water that's the tide because as the earth spins it's trying to catch up to where the water was getting pulled to and that's where you see the tide going in and out it's not actually the water that's moving it's the earth that's spinning and we're Mm. just seeing the tide as a as a factor of the earth spinning which like is the, insane, and, and it doesn't fit into the flat Earth model. For it. I like, yeah, like I was gonna say, I like the flat Earth model better because it's less yeah. complicated. <laughs> yeah. So it's just a hologram, and someone's just doing it. Exactly, exactly. So let's get to let's get towards the end here. Um, so the guy flies back to his body. He says, um, "Oh, and this one's this one's kind of funny." So, so Descartes 
presented me with two hyperbolical glasses to make me a perspective glass, a telescope, wherein he assured me I might stand on Earth and discover all the curiosities of the globe and the moon and the animals themselves. He demonstrated that in the excellence of his figure, this glass telescope beyond all others. So the dude's like, I got to go back home. I don't want my homunculus to screw anything up. And Descartes's like, hold on, take, take this badass telescope. And then you can like look at the craters and you can learn all this stuff for yourself. So he takes this telescope as a spirit and he flies back to his house. And he says, in less than six hours time, it's a long ass trip to go from outer space back to your house. Six hours time, we arrived at my house. So realistic. Where, whereas the most unfortunate disaster for in pitching with the most violent descent and not considering the telescope I had with me, I passed through my chamber wall, but my glass being in bodily, um, bodily quality could not enter and was stopped and dashed in a thousand pieces. So he's like the spirit has this telescope and as he flies through the wall of his house back to his body, the telescope is not a spirit. It's so super realistic, bro. Side of his house and it breaks into pieces. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is as realistic as it's going to get. I mean, and, he, and he's talking about physics, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like this is how like the spirit realm and the physical realm interact with each other. So he says that uh, um, as the glass could not enter, they were stopped, dashed in a thousand pieces, flew against the stones. And thus, I was forever deprived of the pleasure of making this experiment that Descartes had warranted or of seeing from our earth all the occurrences of the moon as distinctly as I was personally there. So he never gets to use a telescope after this. It was only this one that Descartes gave him in the ethereal realm, and he never gets to use it in real life. And he says, As I returned home, I found my body somewhat fainted and feverish by reason that a fast of over 30 hours. So he's been out of his body for 30 hours at this point. Before I entered, I would have persuaded my little Negro to reinstate my brain in its former capacity fearing that he had unhinged some clockwork there for that must be something more ordinary in the machine so he's like yo dude is everything still good did you screw anything up all right we're good so he says um as being reunited with my body i found myself a fool for this little arch devil of a spirit refused to do it telling me that i was highly obliged to him now for setting me right in my ideas and i must therefore venture on for better or for worse having thanked father and my old gentleman previously promised their safety their company so fine a voyage my soul entered her body so basically the guy gets back home and the homunculus is like sorry bro like i run this body now you can't come back in but since he's got the old dude and the father with him they're like hey man we told him before we went that he could have his body back so like you better give him his body back and the way that he writes this is that if he wasn't accompanied by the old man he would have been screwed he would have got back and wouldn't have been able to convince the homunculus to give his body back so again this this indicates the uh the dangers of astral projection in this way fucking homunculus is gonna hijack his body bro they fucking stole it you know what i'm saying <laughs> so uh so and i'll end it here he, he mentions how um like just how it was a total mind melt from coming back from this. But he says that three things that he took away from this experience, this is the information that he brought back from the astral realm. One, that God creates matter. Two, that God divides matter into an infinite little cubicle parts. Again, cubes with angles on them that can knock into each other. And three, 
determining several great portions of matter, he puts them in circular motion and makes the little cubicle parts um, called vortices to turn about their center. And that's it. Those are the, those are the three laws of creating a universe is that matter is everywhere and that space and matter are the same thing that it's created of little perfect cubes and those cubes knocking into each other and the little dust flying apart. That's what creates the matter that me and you see. Like we don't see the first and second matter. We see that third dust matter. Well, yeah. Like just imagine what the, what that original matter is. Right. I mean, that's essentially what the other dimensions, right. That we're not able to perceive. I guess <laughs> you know Honestly, what I mean. You can only really know by taking that DMT because we're only a byproduct. Spirit, where that dust, you know, and but... and we can only see the dust, right? Like just like the the transubstantiation thing, like we can only see the cracker because the cracker is the dust, and if we're trapped inside dust itself, then like our filters and our optic nerves, that's all dust. So dust can only perceive dust, whereas yeah. spirit can perceive spirit. We're just dust in the wind, Thomas. Dust in the oh, wind. <laughs> yeah, dude. What a what uh it was an it was a decently easy read. I did get lost on a lot of parts, the the really convoluted parts of the physics, and I kind of skimmed over those parts. But I mean, the gist of it that you're able to go into outer space and build these mind palaces essentially is what it is because they're they're like being built by the minds of these philosophers, the souls of these philosophers. And then you have the worshipers there and you identify yourself with a certain handshake and all these things. And the, yeah, dude, I mean, any closing thoughts on this? Well, I, I enjoyed it. I, I do think it wasn't a story. I do think it was real based on true events. And I'm going to stick to that. And <laughs> I want to believe so much. I want to believe that, <laughs> that Descartes, was doing DMT and saw that he saw these things firsthand and it wasn't him just sitting down and theorizing stuff and like, Oh, this makes sense. So I'll pitch this. It was him saying like, Oh, that's how the world was created because I saw it for myself. And of course it makes sense. It was almost like the self-evident thing. It didn't, and it didn't create these books and books of formulas. It was like, here's the three simple rules. And as long as you follow these rules, everything else flows from that. So I love that part of it, and it, it's hard to convey this in this podcast as we talk about it, but it's so visual. Like The way that the writer describes this stuff, you actually see them floating in outer space, mm -hmm. and you see these balls of energy, and you see these huge um, square objects smashing against each other as they're flying around like the outside of a hurricane and turning into dust, and you can see the little corners breaking off and turning into these spheres because when he writes it, he's so visual about it. Like you can't help but to see this actually happen in front of you, just like he says that he saw it firsthand. So I, I found that so remarkable because I haven't read a book this old that was this clearly spoken. Usually you get halfway through it and you're like, I, you convince yourself you understand it, but you know deep down that you've got like no idea what the hell they're talking about. This one, it felt, I didn't feel that throughout the whole book. I only felt that in certain parts. But it was like, man, the way that they're able to describe this so simply in a way that, that I can visualize it means that whoever wrote this really understood these concepts in a very deep level, way more than I think I do. So 
again, I think that gives credit. Maybe this dude really did learn this directly from the cart. Yeah, I just want to say you did a phenomenal job breaking it down because I don't think I would have been able to break it down as easily as you did. I stopped taking notes, I think, like on page, like close to page 200. You, you got to the little black <laughs> homunculus and you were like, oh. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, dude, good job on that. And hopefully on this next one, I think it's going to tie in nicely into to this. Maybe we can. Well, like you said, man, this book filled in so many gaps so i can just see us bringing the and people are going to be like huh the voyage of cartesius what are you talking about like nah bro that this is one of like the missing link between so many other topics and for me this it was yeah and for me too man and it's crazy because where it filled in blanks for you is completely different on how it filled in blanks for me so that really is this book is this incredible rosetta stone at least to me it is yeah yeah and again like i said I've looked into this obscure stuff before and it might, bro, it might be fan fiction, but I don't, I don't know. I've learned the way I look at reality and the way I look at stories now and writing and just literature in general, I look at it completely different than I would have when I first started the podcast because the, the, the truth is stranger than fiction. And I mean, we got guys like this, especially the cultists that are writing about this and just under the, 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 the facade of like, Oh, I'm super religious. And like, they're, end up being the total opposite but they tell it under a story because they can't be they don't want to be ridiculed or prosecuted or whatever it is you know what i'm saying like they're persecuted whatever whatever the case may be and then, hey it's just uh it's just a fun story we're just traveling through space with rene descartes and uh, we met all these people on the way along the way well and there's also to me there's a big difference between again fan fiction that was written 30 years after the person you're writing about lived where you're a contemporary mm -hmm. versus fan fiction 200 years later like those sure. are completely different types of fan fiction so that yeah. that makes me want to give this book so much more credit that it was written you know so close within the time spans of galileo and descartes like that that's so mind-blowing to me because when we read this i just assume that this came so much later and that this guy had lifetimes to mm -hmm. just you know absorb all these different philosophies no like this guy lived in a world where descartes and galileo were fairly mm -hmm. new revolutionary ideas and there wasn't like you could just go to school and have someone train you all this stuff you had to like learn it through secret connections and like you know you didn't just like accidentally come across this information and understand it so on a scale of read it not i mean we're not buying this book but read it gotta read it I looked it up, but it was the cheapest one was like two 11, grand or something. Eleven. I saw it for eleven hundred. It was a second edition, though. It wasn't a first edition. Oh yeah, we only you can only do the first editions around here. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you think, bro? Should people read it? Not read it? Waste their time? Not waste their time? I I say read it. I say this one is well worth the read. Although both both of us discovered that the first third of it, like before he actually takes the DMT yeah. and goes to outer space. It's a very slow read, and it almost feels like someone's about to just drop, like a college course on you. But yeah. it, it it takes a turn, and then it becomes very approachable at a certain point. So for that reason, it's definitely a read it for me. Yeah, I know it's going bad when I have to keep rereading over what I just read and just and re going back over what I read. So I'll read the paragraph, and it just like I spaced out, so I have to go back and read it again. And then when I, I had to have a dictionary next to me, they use so many <laughs> words that are just completely. And he referenced that, a lot of like papers that the other theologians wrote 
So right. like it was there's a one, lot of mythology in here. Yeah. He does a lot of correlations with like old Roman tales and yeah. Greek tragedies and mm-hmm. th- th- there's there's actually one I don't even want to go on this tangent, but he mentions I'm a hundred percent. I actually want to find the quote. Um, uh, he mentions the two to three and five, um, which which triggered me, be- and the three heavens. Oh man, very Eno- there was something... Enochian, right? Like Enoch and the three books and the three steps. Um, here we go. So this is the quote. So he's talking about this, um, how the shape of a spiral takes uh, form. And I skipped over this because it gets into the weeds, but he says, among the parts of the first element, which are made of filings of the second, the little bits mm-hmm. that are getting bumped across, there are some irregular figure not as rapid as the other. Those of this nature easily hook themselves together and make up little bodies mm-hmm. larger than the other bodies. And as they turn about, are obliged to pass between the balls of the second element and they accommodate themselves for that passage by squeezing between them, writhing themselves into the shape of a screw, or becoming like little pillars chamfered with three furrows and gutted and turned as you see the shell of a snail. He's describing that, like, as things are getting sucked into the center the Fibonacci of Fibonacci sequence or some shit. It creates <laughs> that spiral. And he's describing yeah. why it creates that spiral is because it needs to move itself in and out of this, like, this persistent matter. So it looks to us like a spiral, but really that's just the only way that it can get to the center by avoiding all this other stuff. Well, that that last part, a million people would read over this and not even take note. But when he says three furrows, for some reason, I was like, man, why have I heard this in so many different places? So I went on a, a crazy tangent deep dive, but essentially in Homer's Odyssey, there's this quote and it says that when Demeter of the braided tresses followed her heart and lay in love with liaison in a triple furrowed field. Zeus was aware of it soon enough and hurled a bright, uh, bright thunderstorm and killed him talking about, um, Iasis and that this triple furrowed field and the cutting of three furrows was part of ancient fertility rites inaugurating the agricultural year. Wow. And that these three furrows is a direct reference to the concept of life and death and these these ancient agriculture cults specifically of Demeter and um Eleusinian um mysteries essentially which would make sense and the, and the three furrows being this agricultural thing which ties into sacred burl worship and just everything under the sun and that in the in the slavic language that um when you consider the Demeter the words is shines and sow seeds. And this is the root of this three furrows. So without going on the craziest tangent ever, the fact that they specifically are talking about the spiral of the universe and this Fibonacci sequence being like little uh, pillars chamfered with three furrows. It seems like what he is describing here is a cyclical nature and talking about agriculture rights and mythology um, so, so again, like even as you read this book and it seems like it's all very literal, it's impossible not That's why to I think see it's coded. like encoded. Yeah, yeah. This isn't this three furrow reference to me is a hundred percent a code to some kind of agricultural or mystery rights. Interesting. Yeah. We'll, we'll dive deeper into the whole magnetism aspect on the next episode, but yeah, this was a, this was a heavy one. 
Hopefully the next read will be a little bit easier. It is Carl Jung, Aeon by Carl Jung. So for those that want to follow along, you can check that out. And we're going to be joined by two other guests. So this should be fun. And yeah, do you want to plug anything before we get out of here, Thomas? Uh, yeah, man, just the uh, time samplers. All five issues are now available both on the website in digital form or if you want to buy it printed or go to Amazon. The latest issue is a super size version, issue five, and it uh, it covers a whole bunch of conspiracy theories on the Titanic from nice. they were smuggling gold to fund the uh, the Federal Reserve uh, to that they had this engine room burning for three days because they were smelting gold on the, the boat itself and that it never actually hit an iceberg. It was actually rammed by a little tugboat <laughs> and that they did it intentionally to sink it as part of a big insurance scam run by JP Morgan and the JP Morgan um, had his own private cabin, but he canceled at the last second. And the only person that remained on board, not him and his friends was Jacob Astor, who was the only remaining financier of Nikola Tesla. Um, And that with Astor falling with the Titanic, not only did it eliminate the resistance to the federal reserve, but it also eliminated the last financier of Tesla making it. So Edison, and, you know, basically industry version of electricity wins over free energy principles. So anyways, this all covered in issue five of Time Samplers, along with all kinds of fun dick jokes. And we've got, uh, <laughs> we've got a little, like, sheeple guy here as the captain of the boat. So the boat is actually being run by literal sheeple people. Uh, man, my, this is probably one of my favorite books that I've written in a long time. So, yeah, Time Samplers, check out the whole series. Check out The Occultist Monday, you know, where to find it. 101podcast.com make sure to for those that are listening to this on the rss feed leave us a five star review please for those watching on youtube make sure to like comment subscribe share smash with your that friends. like button ring that bell smash, smash that like button dude show up at its house and ask if it wants to go on a dmt trip to other dimensions bro but yeah dude, this is fun and i'll see you guys on the next occult book